this is Aaron from the EcoAQ Project. Our mission is to foster a personal relationship with place, country, and the power of growth in all living things. The EcoIQ Project is about deepening our ecological intelligence and using the tools of agroecology and biosensitivity to facilitate an individual transformation. I've long been passionate about the wisdom contained by so many farmers, consultants, researchers, and tribal peoples concerning our intrinsic connection to nature, and especially concerning the growing of plants and the husbandry of animals. It's my belief that we are beginning to awaken to the importance of our connection to ecology, and through science, philosophy, and direct contact farming the land, we're beginning to realize we are not only relevant within our ecologies, but we are a needed and deeply wanted part of the regenerative dance and the succession of land and ourselves from poverty to abundance. We interview people who are deeply invested in their craft and passionate about the processes of nature and our potential within them. We explore the deep science, spiritual learning, entrepreneurship and mind-bending biophysics of agroecology. Deep, transformative and ever-practical, we're excited to be a part of a movement of people ready to look within before looking without. This project and podcast is for you. If you have any comments, questions or suggestions on what we what to talk about next, you can leave me a message on my social media or email me on aaron at ecoiq.org. That's aaron, A-H-A-R-O-N at ecoiq, E-C-O-I-Q dot org. In the show notes of this episode, you will find a link for a short questionnaire. Your feedback is invaluable and I look forward to reading it. This episode with Curtis Stone, the urban farmer, was a really surprising episode for me. I knew from my previous talk with uh, Curtis there was way more to the urban farmer than market gardens and entrepreneurial farming. This episode, I made a decision to follow the advice of my mentor and let my guest open up and explore his own message and ideas unfettered. With Curtis, that approach paid off. We went into uncharted waters about the paramount importance of liberty or freedom and the trade-off between freedom and convenience. We talked about the intimate and intricate link between liberty of, or, or, or freedom and personal responsibility. We talked about the most pervasive thing of all with big ag and big pharma, that they're taking away our, our ability to, to assume more responsibility for our lives, our families, and the land we live on and should be living from. And that ultimately results in way less freedom for us. Curtis covers the difference between the, the difference and importance of common law, which is really the reality on the ground, and the legal law, which is a created law. We also continually keep returning back to the idea that abundance is a natural state and that a mindset of scarcity is a constructed reality. One encourages more responsibility in cooperation, and one encourages no responsibility in competition. Curtis also shares a possible approach um, when dealing with the legal law versus the common law and your personal rights. I find this conversation very critical in our times for farmers especially, and all peoples involved in entrepreneurship and harmony on the land. Curtis has become pretty famous in that interesting space of market gardening. And although the space of market gardening differs quite a lot from my own passionate focus for many years on regenerative farming and a more broad acre and transformational approach, nevertheless, the skills and knowledge and growth that manifest out of market gardens and all those various fields that spring out of market gardens have, I believe, a very strong place and super high value in the whole picture of human transformation through a deeper connection with ecological processes. Not the least of which is the ability to have a very fast turnaround food system that can be set up very rapidly with very basic knowledge and very minimal um, uh, investment. That's a, that, I think that's really why I get on so well with Curtis because Curtis is well and truly aware and focused on the transformational side that is born out of a focus of living, living from the land. I hope you enjoy um, uh, this episode as much as I did with Curtis. 
and um, it's really one of the it's uh, one of the longer episodes that we recorded because I really felt that this um, the content that Curtis was putting out is um, not something that people normally hear, uh, especially farmers, especially people that want to be farmers or want to get on the land or want a deeper connection with the land. But I still, yet I think it's very very critical things that we need to we need to learn about, um, especially in our times. So for that reason, I thought I thought it was uh, um, I thought it was uh, there was a high utility in keeping the conversation. Um, uh, letting the conversation flow out and open up for a little bit longer, so it's quite a long one. And um, if you've got any, um, if you've got any comments, uh, really, we grow from your feedback. At the end of this, in the show notes of this, um, of this episode, there'll be a f- small feedback form, and uh, we grow from your feedback. So, much, much appreciate your feedback. Also, have a small caveat for this episode. I apologize for the um, the f- the sound is not quite up to our quality, and every so often it drops out. That was due for um, due to me and my family having to um, leave quite quickly the the city where we were where we were staying, um, just because of the situation with the lockdown, and we had to go to a place where the connection was not so quite 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 good, and I kind of got caught out in the cold, so to speak. So our connection was not um, what it usually is, and uh, which resulted in some the audio at times not being the quality that I would desire. So apologies about that. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did, and uh, um, we look forward to your your feedback and and uh, and all you have to say about it. This is the EQIQ project. I'm Aaron Henderson. My guest today is a renowned market gardener, educator, uh, consultant, and advocate, Chris Curtis Stone. Curtis, you're the founder of the Urban Farming uh, Urban Farmer Education Entity, a platform teaching young hopefuls how to farm in an urban or semi-urban environment and turn a real profit. I'm also the author of the book by the same name, The Urban Farmer. Co-owner of an innovative uh, online farming tool shop, Paper Co., with Diego Futter from Permaculture Voices. We host the high-quality podcast, Liberty on the Land, and a high-value membership resource platform from the field, exploring beyond market gardens. We recently started developing a collective farming-based farming pro- property to serve as an abundant stronghold in turbulent times. You've got millions of views on YouTube, hundreds of thousands of subscribers. You've helped probably thousands of young people springboard from courses into profitable farming businesses. And uh, it's a real pleasure to welcome on the show again, uh, Curtis. We'll talk a little bit about uh, things a little bit far afield from uh, from Market Garden, but we'll definitely get there. So, welcome to AQRQ. Hey, happy to be back, Aharon. It's a real pleasure. And thanks for that amazing uh, bio intro. I don't think I could have written that better myself. Yeah, I might borrow that from you, actually. That was so good. I appreciate that. That was, that was actually like a, a condensed version. We try to get everything out from our guests. This is about our guests, not about me. So we want to we want to show the people what you're doing. I'm really I'm really curious what you're doing um, right now, Curtis, because I mean it sounds like you're kind of giving Liberty on the Land the podcast a bit of a, a bit of rest for the moment and focusing on something you you I, I feel you're, it's very important for you, which is family, and and now you're focusing on your own family and yeah. Side how how how's it? Can you? Explain a bit to what what's that side is, what why you and why you developed it. Uh, li- sorry, cut out a little bit there. Liberty about liberty on the land. You mean? I was saying, uh, like you just recently mentioned that um, liberty on the land. You're taking a break. Oh, the f- land, and you open up the you yeah. focusing all your all your things on your family and also this uh, new yes on the ground site uh, farm. Yeah, yeah, yep. farm on totally. The yeah, so I mean, well. Uh, Yes, it, uh, that to be honest, that farm actually doesn't take that much work. Um, it's the development of a new site. Um, we're we're in the process of getting out of the city entirely, 
uh, like you, man, I mean, uh, we see stuff going on that, um, requires more immediate attention, uh, probably not quite as extreme as, uh, your situation in Israel, but, um, it is, uh, it's escalating here. And so we definitely see or need a reason to, uh, or, or have a reason to do something. Um, also to, you know, like I've been down, we touched on a little bit the last time we talked, but I basically was on a year long journey of really, really researching the legal structure of, of Canada. It started with learning about the history, um, and then just really pouring into documents. I've read over a hundred acts, um, in, in Canadian law and, uh, you know, thousands of definitions and statutes and all this. And, uh, it, it, it's really shown me kind of what the system is. And, um, it's, it, it's actually very empowering because I don't need conspiracy theories. I don't need to listen to like David Ike, you know, and, and, and get a sense of, of, you know, who's pulling the strings. I don't care who's pulling the strings. I look at the acts and the laws and I go, or they're not the laws of the legal system, but I look at them and I go, yeah, there's a lot of grounds here to be concerned about. Uh, but there's also some remedy in there. So, but basically I spent a year doing that. It was my, it was my hobby. So as weird as it is, you know, the urban farmer, um, doing all the things that I do. I got a family with two kids, my wife, and, and, uh, I, I found a hobby in, uh, reading the legal system, which is, is, is strange, but I became obsessed with it. And so basically that last podcast was saying, look, I need to take a break from this because it's been it, it consuming a lot. And, um, so taking a break, putting the Liberty on the land podcast on hold, um, so that we can focus on getting our own piece of land out of the city and preparing, um, for things that we see coming. Basically, you know, the farm we built this year, uh, was a great testing ground to see how quickly I could train, uh, a crew and, uh, how much, how much resources it takes, uh, to get a farm up fast. And, uh, and even still, you know, how much time it takes, uh, week in, week out, um, you know, looking at kind of a worse, what, what do we do in a situation, <coughs> excuse me, where things are getting really sketchy and how quickly can we make it happen? So it was a really good testing ground, basically. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a, fa- that's a really important thing. I think the speed of, of how fast, because, I mean, from my personal experience, literally my personal experience, we kind of like, I mean, we didn't have to run away, you know, because of violence or something. We just thought, I can't, we can't handle it anymore. Just yes. to, uh, um, I, I don't know how to put it. I mean, it, when, when there's police around, more police. I mean, we had, I don't know if anyone knows, but in Israel, we had, um, we had stabbings here. And they were very, like, extreme on the street. Anyone knows about it. There was, it was kind of a dangerous time. And we didn't Jeez. have the amount of police or cameras. We, have, we had, I mean, there wasn't, it wasn't even half the amount of police on the street then than there is now. And like just police everywhere, like more double the amount of cameras. Why I've got no idea. And um, and they you know kind of like set up cameras and everything. So I mean, I just we just were like we, we don't want to be we don't want to have a kids in this environment anymore. So and one of the things that really struck me is that I thought about exactly that is how fast. I mean, because I don't have yeah, got small garden set up here, just house garden. And I was really thinking, how fast can I get a, a, a set up a system to 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 grow food for our family? That's really like a big issue. What's your experience with like, I'm, I know you had only positive things to say in that um, recent post you had. Could you, could you let us know a bit about like to do with the speed 
and also working with people that are basically not like yourself in some level of a beginner level. How was it like? Totally beginner. What were the results over there? Well, it it was actually quite amazing. Um, It was, uh, I mean, man, when I really start with it, I mean, I did this video, uh, was it earlier this week or last week, whatever, about this process a little bit. I mean, I've been documenting every single step of the way on my membership site. Uh, so that video that went up on YouTube, that's just a really big summary of, 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 of what it was, but you know, it really kind of came down to the fact that, you know, I've got the skills, right? I mean, that that's obvious. I've been farming for 10 years. You know, I, I, I know a lot. I've learned a lot. I've visited hundreds of farms around the world. And so I've got a massive amount of information and experience here, but it was really really inspiring to see how how we were able to make it happen so quickly and so you know what really came down to having a group of people that had skin in the game you know these aren't just employees these are people that are serious about food security they're serious about where things are going and they're willing to put in the time and the and the hard work and the resources to make it happen and so you know, that all came together really quickly because everybody was totally green. Um, only so, so let me just tell you about our crew a little bit. So there's myself. Um, and of course my family is, is part of that, but I'm really the only one, like my wife isn't on the farm. Um, but then we've got my brother-in-law who's, uh, my wife's brother. We've got uh, another couple, that are orchardists that are actually in the area of our farm, just really close to it. Uh, so they're experienced gardeners, kind of more orchardists, uh, but really only a couple years. Um, and then we've got uh, another friend of mine who's like a cryptocurrency guy, a uh, really interesting dude, known him for a number of years. He was one of the first people that was in my CSA like 10 years ago. Uh, we've been friends for a while. And then um, another guy, Warren, who's, who's in our, uh, he works for my tools company, Paper Pot Co. We're modern grower. And uh, he's an engineer. And so, you know, all these guys and, and girls had no experience, but they had the desire. Uh, we all pitched in five grand. So we had a, bu- a working budget of $25,000 Canadian. And um, so far we've only spent, I think now we've, we've spent 15 of that. But um, yeah, I mean, I put a budget together kind of like, okay, we need, it's different than most farms because it's not commercial. And, and, and what I'm, what I'm trying to do with this is, is produce a model that we, we call it S H T F farm. Shit hits the happen. The shit, shit hits the shit hits the fan farm. Right. And so, um, not that, the name means anything. Not like there's going to be a website or anything. There's none of that. This is, this is a farm for us, but I wanted to create a model of how somebody could bootstrap a farm with, you know, minimal inputs, uh, and maximum out. Right. So get a piece of land. We got We got a half acre. It's, it's, it's 50 feet long. Uh, so there's 60, uh, 50 foot beds there using tarps, silage tarps, uh, landscape fabric. We've got six caterpillar tunnels. They're almost done now. We're actually finishing the rest of them today, at least the manufacturing process of them, building them from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, just like how, you know, how quickly can we get this together? And it's been quite amazing the, the, the inspiration for that video I did last week came from having a discussion with some of the members and just kind of saying to them, you know, how easy is this? How, how hard or easy has this been for you guys? You know, cause we're, 
we're kind of six months in right now. Um, and, um, they were all like, it's been barely any work. And it's true. It's been barely any work. The, the, the lion's share of the work came in April when we broke ground and started to prepare and, you know, prepare beds, getting compost on beds, doing all that kind of stuff, getting our silage tarps down. Uh, then from there, installing irrigation, putting up our first greenhouse, kind of the big, big infrastructure stuff at first took the most amount of time. Now we're just in production and it's barely anything. There's literally weeks that go by that nobody's even up there. Irrigation's all on timers. It's really simple. And, and, and it really got me thinking because my whole, I mean, this, what I'm doing now is actually the reason I got into farming 10 years ago, 12 years ago, really, is I wanted to learn how to live off the land. I wanted to be part of a community to grow our food for our own sustenance. That's the initial reason I actually got into farming. But because I, I wanted to make a living at it, that drove me in, in another direction. It leads me to where I am is known as the urban farmer and produced, you know, a lot of videos and content about that. Um, but so it's interesting to kind of go full circle, but it's, um, you know, they all just kind of expressed how easy it's been. And, um, you know, you don't have to plant new crops every week. You don't have to harvest crops twice a week. You don't have to deliver. You don't have to do any customer relations. You don't have to do any bookkeeping. You don't have to do any of that. It's amazing how easy it is. It's, it's actually insane. Um, having said all that, we're not growing a full diet, you know, like keep that into consideration. We're, we're, we're talking annual vegetables here. Um, having said that we are on an orchard and we've got access to a massive amount of stone fruit as well. Um, but I, I'm uh, quite surprised uh, how little work that is as well, actually. Um, so, you know, and we, we, there are animals on this farm as well. Um, and we, my brother-in-law raises uh, small, uh, livestock himself, like, like birds, like ducks, quail, and, uh, chickens. And, uh, putting all this into perspective, it's quite amazing how much work it actually isn't. I mean, if I think about a worst case scenario that we go into this global reset, which I think we're in the beginning stages of, mm -hmm. uh, we're going to see some tough times in some ways. However, if we didn't have to pay bills, pay rent seekers, pay debt collectors, tax collectors and all that, all we had to do was produce our own sustenance to live man, I think it would be a pretty easy existence on this, on this planet. I think that's uh, that, that, that's something, uh, it's something I, I had, I have to ask you the question, uh, Curtis, you know, you seem like uh, a lot from your approach, also your past, you've kind of got like this anarchistic, uh, bent to you a little bit, but the other, on the other side, like, <laughs> big time you're a really yeah. family man. And I'm, I'm just kind of like, you know, you, you really, not just a day family man, you really like you, you install, you know, the qualities of being a family-based person and how the, the things that really kind of seem to annoy you the most is that when people, you know, the destruction of those values, those family values. I'm just wondering how, how does Curtis Stone yeah. meld those two things together, the anarchist kind of thing? And what, what is, I mean, what is, I mean, really anarchy, anarchy is just a word. Who knows what it means? So, like, what does it mean for you? What is well, it means without rulers. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for me, uh, the, you look at the Latin definition and our key really just means without rulers. And so, um, yes, I'm an anarchist. However, I have, I have an absolute, um, respect for the law. And, uh, that's, that's kind of what's driven me into a lot of my recent 
content, uh, you know, for example, Liberty on the Land, some of the, a lot of the things that I've talked about in my live streams over the last year um, has been about that because I've spent a lot of time researching the legal system, which is not the law. Um, it's just statutes and codes, and it's it's a it's a it's a it's a fictitious system that you know you can really go down a rabbit hole on where it all came from. My research has led me to show that it all came from the Vatican and the, and the Holy Roman Empire, um, and it all stems from that Roman civil law, commercial law, the law merchant system. But um, going to your question is how this all connects to you know the family and all that is is I I I have. Probably the most difficult thing that I struggle with in my life is thinking that somebody has power over me and somebody is controlling me or somebody, you know, paying taxes and and all the uh, telling where you can stand, where you can go. And now with this whole Rona thing, uh, it's even worse as, as you've seen yourself in Israel. Um, it's really brought this to the forefront because, uh, the um the sort of the stages of tyranny are upon us uh and they've been around for a long time but now they're they're becoming more obvious and that's that's it's it's been it's been difficult for me you know um that's kind of what's inspired a lot of the research that i've spent on this the system that that we have but um yeah the, the desire to protect my family and to create an environment for my children to grow up in where they experience freedom. And to me, freedom isn't just, you can't tell me what to do. It's, it's taking responsibility for one's existence. That's freedom. And so with freedom become comes great responsibility, right? There's, there's a lot of cliches in history that, that draw us back to that, but that's what real freedom is, 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 is I want my children to have a full understanding of what it takes to live. So where does your food come from? Uh, how do we get the things that we need to, to live? And so, you know, we live in a, in a, in a bona fide uh, off grid home, though we are connected to the grid, but our home produces its own energy. It stores its own energy. We grow a significant amount of food on this little quarter acre property that we're on. Um, but we, but we want to make that, we want to take that further. Uh, one is I value that lifestyle. Um, I get a lot of personal fulfillment out of it. I think it's a great educational, um, platform for my kids to grow up in because my daughter, you know, she's three and, and she always asks where the food, if it's something that we didn't grow or, you know, we didn't get like, you know, we get eggs from our brother-in-law and uh, all of our fruit and vegetables, most, for the most part, come from our property here. She always asks like, where did this come from? Who, who made this? Even with her clothes, she always asks who made this. We get a lot of her clothes from a friend of ours, um, who, who makes clothes for kids. So we really value that in our life. And, um, I don't see any downside to that lifestyle because it does number one, bring us a lot of fulfillment. Um, but thinking about how, where trends are taking us going forward, I think it only is going to benefit us uh, w- looking at a lot of the trends in the world. And, you know, this, um, it all, it all comes back, you know, it, it is, it is uh, at its root. It's, it's permaculture thinking um, at the core, you know, I'm very, very much a student of Bill Mollison, you know, the original 
uh, originator of permaculture. And if you ask me, Bill Mollison was a total bona fide anarchist. He had all of the the intrinsic traits of what an anarchist is. And, 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 and we have to get out of our head that, that anarchy is, is Antifa and smashing Molotov cocktails and, and rioting in the streets. That is not anarchy. That's chaos, but that's not anarchy. They're not one and the same. Um, and, and even, even still to get caught up in the, uh, the semantics is, is pointless, but, but um, I, I really resonate with, with the, the early work of Bill Mollison and it, it's pretty much guided everything I've done um, in my, in my work and, and trying to continuously take more and more responsibility. And I think we're going to get to a point soon, um, where we're going to have to come together as community. So we're going to have to extend that responsibility, uh, outside of the family unit. So the zone zero, if you will, and we're going to have to extend that to the zone one and the zone two and the zone three and the zone four. And who knows how far we can go for me. Um, a big part of my purpose in life is to extend that responsibility. Uh, it's, 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 it's the, it's the real reason that I'm a content creator and, uh, why I put myself out there is because I want to help people on that path. Because if we, if we can imagine ourselves like ripples in a pond, you know, you, you, you throw water in a pond and it creates those ripples. Imagine those as your zone one, two, three, four, five, six, out to infinity, you throw a bunch of stones out into the pond. Zone two, let, let's say zone zero is your, is, is your family, is your homestead. Zone one is your neighborhood community. Zone uh, two is your town. Zone three is whatever layer of geographical jurisdiction you can imagine. We all start to intersect at certain zones. And so I uh, kind of take pride in the fact that I'm trying to extend those to find more points of intersection with groups and like-minded people uh, to find ways that we can help one another and, and work together because I don't think there's any, there's any use against it and saying, screw you. Like I'm, it's, it's, it's let, let's, let's look at it intrinsically. Um, I just in a hyper-realistic way and say, okay, things are going this way. What can we do? to build anti-fragility into every aspect of our life and point of interaction with others. And that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at right now. You know, we're doing a bunch of things, uh, locally I'm working with, a with a, a group to form what's called a common law assembly. And this is basically to say, you know what, we're going to start, you know, for myself, I've taken responsibility for food and energy and, and, and a lot of things that we use day to day. But now let's, let's take it a step further into the, into my community and go, let's form our own government in that. Let's start taking responsibility for our security. Let's start, let's start taking responsibility for our own justice system. Let's start doing the things that we've passed off. Cause I think at, when you really break things down, where, what has gotten us to the situation that we're in today, where there's all these external things that we cannot control genetically modified food there's 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 5g on the horizon we have a tyrannical government around the world it's pretty much the same thing around the world it's a monolithic uh, part of it i'm not saying the only reason but but a, a good part of the reason why i've gotten there is that we have accepted so we need to start taking responsibility we've accepted that those groups and those corporations want to do things for us in exchange for parts of our liberty and because we keep handing over convenience, so it's convenience versus liberty, we keep handing over convenience in exchange for liberty, 
Now we're waking up in this whole lockdown scenario going, okay, wait a second. Maybe I don't like all this. (laughs) And so um, I, I think we need to start taking back responsibility. And that, that's the only thing that's going to, that's going to change anything for, for the individual. Yeah. I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more exactly how, how that plays out. I mean, you know, that's a, I, I, I could say it could be a bit different, but the, the, the crux of what you're saying to accept more responsibility, I want to say a little bit more. Um, I, I learned something from my own kind of a, a journey about, um, it was a very good thing that I learned from a mentor I had once about what is victimhood. And he had a very special approach to it. He said the victimhood actually comes in two sets. And people only really know the mindset, which is just to be a victim, which is very obvious. People, you know, poor me. You know, and there's a lot of people like that in the world. But he said there's also another side to that, which is called, he called the rescuer, which is also a victim, but they're the kind of one that goes out, we're going to save the world. We're going to, you know, otherwise the world's going to blow up. I've got to get out the, the Antifa kind of, you know, we've got to save that other group. And he said the, the unifying thing between them is that the world is something happening to me and I don't have any control over it. It's like, like the antithesis of a creator. Exactly. And I, I, really, I really feel that, yeah. that today it's really coming out in a big way because sometimes you see people that look like they have a lot of power, so to speak. I mean, it, really, that's all they're focused on is power. So it looks like on the outside, you know, they can be very aggressive or they organize riots or something like that. But really, I mean, what are they saying? You know, give us something back. Give us a handout, which seems to me like, you know, basically, you know, the other side of the coin. I mean, they're not saying, poor me. They're getting out and doing something, but this doing something is really just looks like to me like another kind of set of victimhood. It's a, how, absolutely how, how heavy you think this is. This kind of like this uh, is how to get out of that victimhood. I'm just the main reason I'm bringing it up is because I think sometimes people get so stuck in this victimhood they think I'm not a victim. I'm I'm getting yeah. out and doing stuff, but I mean, what are we really doing? You know, it's a, yeah. Really speaks to this uh, thing of, of responsibility. I'm really curious how, what do you think about that? You know what I mean? What's your thing? Well, about I, I, I 100% resonate with that. And I, I have often said, um, there's actually many classes of people in the world, but when you think about it in terms of one's perspective on how things are in the world. So you talked about like the world happening to people, you know, things happening to people. Um, you can be, you can be one of those people where you're just kind of like, okay, things are happening. Um, and you, I like to think about it in three, three types of people. I posted this on, on Facebook recently is that there's people that make things happen. There's people that, um, watch things happen. And then there's people that wonders, wonder what happened. And most people, I would say if you had to break the world up, at least the world as I perceive it, and I'm willing to accept that that could be skewed because I'm just one guy who has one perspective. However, when I look at, when I look around and I see people on the streets wearing masks and stuff like that, it looks to me like there's at least 50% of the, of people that wonder what happens. Like they don't even have a clue on what's going on. They just easily do what they're told. They're the first people that when the government said, you need to stay home. They all stayed home without question. Mm. Then there's another subset that's perhaps, it's probably another, call it 45 to 49% that just watch things happen. More perspe- uh, perceptive. They have opinions on things. They comment on things. Um, they probably wore the mask and stayed home and they might've been the people that were calling you out for not doing that yourself. Mm. The Karens maybe, 
And then there's 1%, which are the people that make things happen. And they, that percent, even though that percent is very diverse and there's a lot of people in that percent, it's still 1%, they dominate society. And that's for better or worse. In that 1%, there's a lot of bad people, uh, but there's also a lot of good people. But nonetheless, there are people that just make shit happen. They do stuff. They're the creators. And, I, and I've always tried to surround myself with people like that. And I found six years ago when I did that, my whole life changed very quickly, very, very quickly. Um, and one, one thing that I've realized uh, recently, I, I, I feel like I've had a, a spiritual revelation with this, is that because I've learned so much about the legal system in Canada over the last year, I really feel that there's so much responsibility that, that we can take with that. And one thing I, I noticed is that it's all just creation. Like all these words, all these statutes, all these codes, things that we perceive as laws, they're just created by somebody else, but we've kept, we've decided to agree to them. And so we have take, we have to take responsibility. But the thing that's quite empowering about it for me is that, I, I believe on a spiritual level um, and I'll just step outside into the metaphysical for a, a few months and we'll circle back, but uh, because I can't prove these things, but I, but I do believe that we are divine. Yeah. What's that? I'm saying we can. Yeah. So, so I, I, I do believe that we are divine. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right on. So I do believe that we're divine and when we're born, we come into this body and it's the first layer of an onion, of a, of a sort of a metaphysical onion. You're that first layer. And then as you grow and you learn things, you start to add layers of complexity that, that get you further and further what, from what your divinity is. But I believe that all of the spiritual entities on this planet we're all part of the same stuff. We're all part of the same divinity. We are all God, for a lack of a better word. Uh, Christians would say we're all part of Christ, and, 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 I, and, I, and I believe that. Um, and when we realize that we are part of the divinity, and we realize that we are all part of the creation and the creator, we have the ability to create, and we can create whatever we th- imagine. And it's really that powerful. And every, every seriously powerful individual that I've met in my life intrinsically understands that on a very deep level. And they manifest things that are beyond the comprehension or the imagination of most. And a lot of people, a lot of the, especially the people that wonder what happens, they're sitting there going, I can't even think about how somebody could do that kind of thing. And usually what, it, when it look, what, what, what I notice in society is this sort of stratification of classes where call it that 50% that wonder what happens. They really hate on the 1%. They really think that, Oh, you know, people who, who have big companies and, and do lots, do, do a lot of things, they should pay more taxes, right? Cause they're taking from somebody. And, and of course, in some cases they are. Um, and then there's that other group that get really angry about it. And they're like the political activists that are calling it. And, I, and I, I'm being very broad, but I'm just trying to paint a picture. Um, whereas the, the 1%, the people that make things happen, if they're not totally at the level of people who really, really make things happen, because they're all stratified, right? Um, they're sitting there going, wow, look at the mindset of the, those individuals and how they accomplish it. What do I have to do to do that? 
right? It's so, so it's everybody else is sitting there going, Oh, how this guy has all this money. We need to take some of that, you know? And then, then there's the smaller subset that's going, wow, that's amazing that that individual was able to create so much value for, for those around them. Uh, what do I have to do to get in that, get in that program to do that kind of thing? And, uh, once you understand that, because you, you, you don't even have to get into the spiritual, I think you can totally look at it just in, in, in the physical level and just go like, Holy crap. When you hang out with some really productive people, they have some things in their mind that allow them to do that. And, uh, it's quite empowering. And so f- for myself, uh, I ha- it's so strange, but I, by reading all of these law, these legal statutes and codes and all this BS, which is, in my opinion, is the sort of, I call it the beast system, the death cult system. It's been quite empowering because when I look at it, just like for what it is, objectively, this is just a creation of some individuals. It's like five guys that sat around a table and go, how do we rule the world? How do we get everybody to give us all of their stuff? It's just a creation. And there's no reason why any of us can't create those things for ourselves. And that, that kind of what, that's kind of what brings me back to this, this idea of a common law assembly is that let's just form our own government. And I see it in a very permaculture way in that when you look at nature and you say, if, if you, ever, you ever seen like a derelict city or like a sidewalk that wasn't maintained, you know, like you go to some really sketchy parts of some like deserted cities in the world that, you see how quickly nature takes, takes over them, right? Like if you don't, if you were to just leave a city block abandoned for a year, you would see so many breaks in the concrete that you would disappear. Nature consumes everything. And so I think what we need to do is when we start to identify who are the people in our community, in our state, our zone one, who are willing to take responsibility and do something that has a physical effect where we are right now, we need to be like grass in the concrete. And so you see little, little clumps of grass that just form in the concrete and you go, how the hell did that get there? It's because dust came in there that turned into soil seeds blew in those seeds rooted through. They somehow broke their way through the concrete though. You think it's impossible, but they did. We need to be like grass in the concrete and we start to come together in clusters and then we start, as our zones of, of influence expand, we start to intersect more. And then, boom, that concrete's gone in a couple of years because there's nowhere else to go at this point, right? There's no, um, yeah, sure, you can move to some remote island. I, I know some guys that have done that. But in the long run, there's no new territory. You know, Earth has been colonized fully. And at least that's the, the, the physical area that we understand. Maybe there's more, but, but um, we can't really go anywhere. So we have to go internally and locally, externally. So that's, I'm getting over a cough. It, it sounds like you are too. So I have to mute myself every now and then so I don't blow people's ears out. <laughs> the same thing it's okay i know exactly where you're coming from it's really interesting what you said um uh, curtis is particularly there's a few points i want to unwrap over there um coming from a from a jewish background um it's really uh, like deep set in the jewish belief especially in more kabbalistic kind of metaphysical uh, areas that the spirit is most manifest in physical 
And it's something I've noticed really, it just calls to what you said, you know, we need to, even if you say, you said, even if we go outside the spirit and we just look at nature and that's kind of like where I'm kind of like want to springboard off from. It's something that I've noticed and I've heard echoed from all the guests I've had that uh, the nature, abundance inside nature is a natural thing. It's not something that like you have to really necessarily work so hard for. And I really feel that like this kind of thing we were talking about, the, the kind of victims that the, the people that kind of, you know, what happened, not those people that what happened, the kind of people that they're, they're reacting against, you know, we've got to take down the, the, the people that have money and we've got, to, we've got to get some of that. Really at the heart of it, it's, there is not enough. This idea hasn't been locked into that if, if we just let go. Scarcity. Yeah, it's just like a really scarcity mindset that if I, if I don't have, and it's funny because it really seems like to me that's kind of the thing most of these people are fighting against, really. They're like, okay, you know, you, there's not enough. You know, we need to, if, we, if they, that person, yeah. then I don't have. So I've got to get. But that's exactly what they think that person, how that person got yeah. there. This is really interesting, I think, is really yes. what's happened is the reason, real reason that person got there. And the real, that's my own personal thing. That's what I'm heading for. Is because, because, like you said, and also I heard it echoed from one of our last guests, John Ken, he, he brought up a really amazing point. He said, we are co-creators with our creator. That's what he wants. He wants us to be like him and yep. just get into this sense of creation. And I've noticed from what he's, I mean, he said he crazy, the crazy things. He had said he had some clients that when they started to work with the soul and everything, they get results of 300% more. And he said, I can't even advertise that because people were like, you know, you're lying. It just goes to show like this level of abundance is just a natural thing. And I, I just, uh, I really feel what you, what you echoed that, you know, all these, in the concrete, all these grasses in the concrete. I mean, if we just let go and just help what's happened, what's going to happen anyway, I mean, there's going to be more than enough for anyone. But if we don't, I feel if we don't lock into this idea that we are co-creators and we're not, the world is not happening to us and we just sit back. I think, uh, I think I, I really wanted to ask you the question, how important you think it is really that, um, the, those people, because there is a lot of people right now that are at home and they're really like upset. And I think there's some people just really pissed off basically what's happening now. And they just don't necessarily know what to do, but they're kind of ready to do something. And I think even the fact that they're, they're exercising their brains, they're starting to look, there's plenty out there, knowledge on the internet. They're starting to dive not necessarily in the conspiracy theories, but they're just starting to like to, to wake up a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm trying, I'm, I'm want to ask you how, how important you think those people are, you know, because a lot of people are there, but you don't know what to do, but they're, they're ready to take responsibility and they're ready to like to wake up to, to what's going on because it's starting to become a bit obvious. There is something fishy going on right now. Well, yeah, I think, I think everyone is important. I think everyone is valuable. I think everyone is, is a spirit. Everybody is, is, is a part of divinity and, but we're not all at the same level of understanding. And so it's important to, it's important to reflect on that because I think at a time like right now, it's really easy to get pissed off about the sheeple, you know, like I don't, I don't really like that term. And I, I've tried to become more aware of, of, of using that kind of language and, and kind of demeaning people because I was one at one time too. Like there, there's, I'm, I'm only 40 years old and I would say at least the first 30 years of my life, I wasn't very awake. So I think all those people are important. However, I think there's another, there's another universal truth in nature that we have to be aware of when we start to think about what do we do about 
these people, okay, whatever that group is, um, we have to follow the path of least resistance because that is a truism in nature. Nature always follows the path of least resistance. The forest doesn't naturally grow towards the desert. It naturally grows towards the area with water, right? It naturally grows towards the area that gives it the least amount of resistance. Um, And so when we look at people, you know, and, and our bodies are of nature. Yes, our minds and our and our and our spirits are divinity. But I I, I don't quite understand because I'm no spiritual guru. I don't know where the nature and divinity intersect or wh- where the line is, if there is one, what it is, whatever. But we have to recognize that our bodies are part of nature and. And we are constrained by that in some ways. We have to eat, we have to go to the bathroom, we have to drink water, we have to find shelter and all these things. And so we have to um, respect the fact that there are some things that are just not worth pursuing uh, because of those natural constraints. And, and those constraints exist in the mind as well. As you, as you outlined the idea of scarcity, that is an idea that only exists in the mind. And I don't even know if it exists in the natural mind naturally. Like that is an idea that has been propagated on us. And it's why every king and queen and pope and politician and media continuously hammer on the idea of scarcity to get it in our minds that there's not enough to go around and we need them to divvy it up. And we need them to to create an environment of justice so that there's enough for everybody. Meanwhile, they're always running around with money bags and dumping their own uh, offshore accounts and doing all the things that they do. Um, So the idea of scarcity only exists in your mind and it's been put there externally. And so it is important as a first step, as you kind of outlined that you get rid of the idea of scarcity because all you have to do is observe in nature that there really is no scarcity in nature without the intervention of that idea that we've manifested into the physical. And then we've created scarcity. Like, like for example, large scale conventional industrial agriculture has created massive amounts of scare scarcity that wouldn't have existed in nature if it left to its own device. We've created it right? We've created these massive monocultures that have created massive amounts of problems in nature, uh, whether it is, uh, you know, chemical fertilizer runoff, um, massive amounts of pest problems because there are no monocultures in nature and nature responds in its own way to take that down. Um, we've created all kinds of legal scarcities, even within the agricultural system that, that disincentivize the family farm, break that family unit up, you know, you can literally go on forever, you know? Um, but all of those things exist in our mind and they've been put there from somewhere else. And so I think the biggest step forward, cause I don't know what everybody's solution is, but the biggest step forward, if I, if you were to ask me what it would be, how do we get some of these people on board is first get that scarcity out of your mind as best as you can. And really nature has been the best teacher for me. Um, certainly originally came from the, uh, um, my, my first readings of Bill Mollison's work, um, in that he was observing those things in nature and putting forward those patterns. Um, and you see them all over, 
the natural world, whether it's the Fibonacci spiral that we find in, in natural systems everywhere, whether it's on this planet or what we observe in space. The, the, there are so many of these natural things and it's absolute abundance. And, and the Fibonacci spiral in, in, in my mind is one of the, the perfect descriptive uh, metaphors for how abundant nature is, is that things start off in this small spiral and they quickly exponentially grow. If you just think about a seed and what a seed will create and then how that plant will create 10,000 other seeds and it exponentially grows from there. And we need to be more like that because once we start to understand that abundance, we can get rid of greed, which is, which is a huge human problem. Greed and, and which, which was connected to lust for power lust for wealth, lust for whatever vice that, that, that we engage in. Uh, but w- once we start to recognize that abundance, we can share and, and bring people into that abundance and it can grow exponentially from there. I really want to get your opinion a bit on, because you talked quite strongly on this point and I really resonate with what you said. You talked a lot about um, this breaking down of, of, the, of the family unit in many different areas. And I really, I we haven't, I haven't had many guests really talk about that very much. I had, um, I had uh, uh, Dr. Charles Massey. He we covered it a little bit with him, but not many of our guests really talked about that. And I think it's such a crucial thing to talk about because without the like understanding of that in terms of farmers, in terms of agriculture, and I know market gardens, I think you know occupies a kind of unique area in that in that space. It's not exactly agriculture, but it kind of is. It's peri-urban. But it's a very crucial space, I think. Um, and in general, agriculture, the mega ag and mega farmer, you, you mentioned before that you really feel that they're, that they're trying to break up the, the family unit, the family system. Could you, could you expand on that a little bit? Because that's, like, I think, such a crucial thing for us to understand because that's our food. It is. It is. It's, a, it's, actually, it's actually, it might be the linchpin. I, I, I don't know for sure. I don't know how you equate each one of these things or how you put value on them, but... Um, you know, it's one thing to theorize and look for evidence as to who and why exactly that has been put into our psyche, but you really only need to look at the evidence of the outcomes. And it's, it's very apparent that for the last hundred or so years, you can see a steady decline and you can bring it back to farmers, which I always like to, cause I'm, I'm a farmer and that's what I came into this from is you can see how the destruction of the family farm has caused all kinds of problems because the destruction of the family unit itself, when you break up the family, which the family is this amazingly interdependent and sovereign unit. And when you break up the family, there's a lot of needs uh, and resources that are no longer met. And so as you break up the mother, the, the father and the child, now they are externalized and compartmentalized to find certain needs. And so one, you know, one, one you can really intrinsically see in, in, in United States culture is after LBJ brought in the the New Deal to bring in the, the 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 great welfare state of the United States as we know it today, the decline in um, the family unit of black families, black and Latino families, and uh, you know a, a lot of people, particularly uh, men like Thomas Sowell and uh, 
Walter Williams, uh, even guys that are still younger today and more prolific, like Larry Elder, a lot of what people would classify as conservative uh, thinkers. And I think it's important to not get hung up on that uh, because I think some people look at some people's content and go, oh, well, they think this, so therefore... I'll disregard everything else they've said. These guys really have done a good job over the last 40 years in massive amounts of publications and studies showing that this welfare state it disincentivized the family unit. So, so where the father provided resources to the mother so that the mother can provide resources to the children, breaking up that, 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 that sovereign entity. Now the mother needs resources so she can take care of her children. And where does she get them? She gets them from the state. She gets them from the welfare state. And then that welfare state in return says, okay, we'll give you resources, but you got to give us your kids to teach. So we're going to, we're going to now take responsibility for educating your children. And we're going to give you X amount of dollars a month that you can spend in this place, this place, and this place. So if you look at like a food stamps program or something like that, you can spend it here and here and here. Um, that has broken up that dependency, that interdependency. So now the other external problem is, well, now that child doesn't have a father. And I really believe as a family man, as I'm sure you do, and, and you probably rec- uh, see this dynamic in your own family, is that the mother and the father are the yin and the yang, right? There, there's certain uh, nurturing characteristics that the mother brings in, and then there's certain sort of disciplinary and perhaps um, resource management skills and, and attributes that the father brings in and both those things create a harmony that creates the family it's a beautiful thing and ever since that has been broken up you notice that you know in in black families in the united states according to the data and all this data is very widely available they went from a uh 78 of black families were united and had strong family values. You know, a, a lot more black folks back then were, were, were uh, had more, more vocal about their spiritual beliefs and, and whatever those were, predominantly Christian at that time. Now to a point where it's completely inverted, where only 17%, I believe that's the number, 17% of black families are actually an entire family unit. So basically, you know, 83% of Black families in the United States are broken up and now look where they are, right? Of course, we're not talking about all because I know lots of, uh, of black families that don't meet, meet those statistics. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's easy to see where the outcome of breaking up that family unit takes us. It takes us to a point of dependency. It takes us to a point of, um, uh, meaningless in our lives. You know, you look at, 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 at uh, black youth today, according to these statistics, and you see a lot of crime, you see a lot of uh, violence towards women. You don't have a good father present. You're actually more likely to be violent to women. And, um, you know, it's scary. It's scary. And so th- that all comes to the family farm as well, because, you know, to break up the family farm, basically, so, you know, the USDA comes in with, with massive amounts of incentives, exact same thing in Canada, incentives to uh, incentivize corporate monoculture, industrial agriculture. That's not so, that doesn't lend itself to a family, right? Living on a family farm when all your dad does is drives a big tractor and goes and plows a thousand acres of one crop 
and then sprays a bunch of chemicals on there to, to deal with the problems. And, you know, there, there's like a, a, a very slim number of things that has to be done in that farm day to day. doesn't lend itself to a family life because on a, on a holistic farm, on a regenerative farm, or even just a traditional family farm where you might've had a one or two acre market garden, maybe you had five acres of cash crop, but you also had a, a market garden that was diversified. So the children could get engaged in the work. The kids would go out and collect the eggs in the morning, right? Mother would uh, partake in the farm by maybe milking the cows. Dad was out managing the cash crop. Everybody came back at some point to manage the the, the, the vegetable garden that everybody shared. Um, everything about it, moving the animals, all that. On a diversified farm, there's such a variety of tasks can be done that, can, that, that the family can engage in. And because that's been incentivized out of existence there's very few families that actually are on the farm anymore. And this is all statistically correct. You can go and look at all the, just using the U.S., for example, because those statistics are, are, are widely available. That's just the way it is. And we can see that it's continuing to go that way. And that, that's actually what really drove me um, digging deeper into this. And it's how I ended up getting into all this legislation crap that I spent the last year reading, because I, I actually found... Uh, an act in Canada called the Agricultural Land Commission Act, which was on the surface, this sort of virtue signaling of socialist environmentalism, like, oh, we need to, and, and all, and wrap baked in food security and all these buzzwords that everybody loves to, to uh, talk about. Um, it's like, okay, let's, we need to save the farmland because if we, if we just, if we, uh, let everything get gobbled up by development, we'll have no farmland we'll have no food security. And so they created this, this, this plan in 1973 to do that. Yet when you look at the outcome versus what they said it was going to do to where the outcome is now in that the province that I live in, this geographical area that I live in, produces less than 10% of its own food. Whereas in the 1970s, it was over 70. It was like something like 78% of the food we consumed here used to be produced here prior to the Agricultural Land Commission Act. And so I'm not saying, I'm not making the claim that there is a direct correlation or causation, but it's obvious that there's a correlation, especially when you start to dig into the acts and how all of these codes that they put into this thing really disincentivizes the family farm, be it through not allowing secondary buildings to be put on structure. So you have a family farm of 10 acres that was say a diversified family farm, just like I described. And you know, your parents brought you up on that farm. You grew up on that farm. Now your parents want to retire. Now you have kids. Now you want to bring your kids into the family farm, but now the government says, oh, you can't build a home for your retired parents on this land anymore. So now you got to break up the family. So now you got to send, you got to send your parents, your retiring parents to some retirement community so that you can now externalize that thing. And then they can be taken care of either the government or some corporation. They're the same thing. And now what, what do you do? Okay, so now you're the family on the farm you need some help with the kids because in order to go and do all the work that needs to be done on the farm, you need help. Okay. So now you're going to externalize that. Okay. So now let's send our children to the government daycare, the government indoctrination camp. Right. And so there's all these external things that we have to do that just continuously break up the family. And that if you really delve into that, 
you will find that there's not only thousands, if not millions of policies that, that lead us in that direction, but all of these policies and things have continuously created more and more problems that the funny thing is the ultimate irony and sickening irony of it is, is that the government always comes back to say that they can solve that problem with another program. Mm -hmm. And then now we get in this endless loop. Mm -hmm. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. There's a lot that there's a lot of things. There's a lot of points there, Curtis. I really, I just wanted to like kind of um, coming from a, you know, my own family, I have a wife that's very entrepreneurial. I just wanted to say I really resonated with this uh, kind of this uh, idea that you said the, the family unit, there is like a harmonizing element between the husband and the wife. And I feel really that is true. I just wanted to express my opinion in that to the listeners. I, felt that, I feel that's very, very true, regardless of what uh, roles the, the physically the mother and the father have. You know what I mean? In some, like in, in my case, I'm also a businessman, but my wife is also yep. And I feel that has absolutely no relevance on on, the, on that dynamic you know what i mean there is some characteristics that are naturally feminine that come out of my wife and there's some characteristics that are masculine that come out of me and there's like that you know you're trying to you're trying to do your best to make it that, that creates a harmony inside the family and i think that's so i just wanted to yep. definitely you know stipulate that i think it has no relevance at all what exactly the mother or father is doing or what their what their characteristics are it's like a kind of inbuilt thing but um, also it really seems to me, basically, what we're talking about, Curtis, is, is really reducing the ability for people to take on more responsibility. Is that, that, did I get the, get the yep. nap in the head there? Or? Sounds like the main really thing that... that yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the underlying thrust of it all is, uh, again, it's the trade-off between convenience versus liberty. And liberty... There, there's, there's other intersections in there. Liberty is directly tied to responsibility. So yes, liberty is, I want the freedom to make the decisions of how I conduct my life and everything I do in my life, who I interact with, where I, where I eat, where I live, whatever it is. Um, but in order to have that liberty fully realized, you have to take responsibility because if you're assuming that aspects of that liberty or those things that you need in your life are going to be provided by something external, then, then, then that's where the trade-off comes is that you're going to have less Liberty. And so what we can do and really what it comes down to in, 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 in permaculture practice and, and even philosophy, I'm also, you know, a, a, a big fan of David Holmgren's work and uh, his, one of his sort of philosophical books in permaculture that I think is so important is Pathways and Principles Beyond Sustainability. And in that book, he really gets into this philosophy of, of how we localize these things. And the more we localize them, we bring them closer into those zones of existence that we have, right? And so the zone, maybe the zone zero is your own body. Maybe the zone one is your family. However you want to stipulate that. Um, the closer we can bring those things into our inner zones, the more they, the more that we're controllable, that they're controllable, at least that we can have more of a say on what's involved there. And so, yeah, absolutely. That's, you hit the nail on the head there for sure. But that, I really feel like a kind of like a semi kind of disturbing uh, statistic that I'm, I'm kind of quite familiar now because it's just been drummed in my head for so long from quite a few different number of mentors and teachers I've had. There is a really disturbing, actually it's from Canadian research actually, that was done in the 1980s and it showed that the yields and the, and the input costs and profits of farmers and also the farmer income. And it's a very 
like interesting and kind of disturbing graph because you see the the you know as per USDA and all the mega ag corps you know propaganda the yields are going up and that's true and you know since the green revolution there is logically you know yields would go up a little bit because you know you improve the genetics a little bit how you're going to farm and there is a little bit of going up there so at, at, in, in the in the beginning it was kind of going up and that but the other thing the input costs were also going up and the input profits are going up meaning of the companies that inputs but the really funny yeah. the farmer income just around where the profits of the of the input companies started to really start of kind of the hockey stick style to go up a lot, that farmer income yeah. stagnated yeah. and then started to go down. Whereas to the point now where the, the income of course is just so minimal, you get a lot of farmers worldwide that are committing suicide. Basically, they literally absolutely killing themselves literally. Oh, yeah, I just think I just think that's exactly what we were talking about now because the the, the to put these two kind of things together. I'm really curious on your take on it. We talked about responsibility and well, tied up together, but also yeah. abundance. And I mean, if you take away these farmers' ability to have, like what you said, this kind of diverse responsibility of the father and the family, uh, the, uh, you take away that responsibility, suddenly he's disconnected from the abundance that should be there anyway. And instead, where the abundance goes, straight to the ag company, straight to the to the. Yeah, it's a it's it's kind of a disturbing trend. Yeah. It's very hidden, you know. It's not so well known. It it is. Well, it is, and there's also an aspect there that that might be worth dissecting a little bit more. In that, you know, you talk about how you know the conventional yields went up, and, and a lot of these yeah. metrics, like the profit went up, yet what the farmer brought home at the end of the day go down. That is correct. Um, though there is some new data on, on overall, uh, ag conventional ag output that shows that it is declining. And I think that's because it goes up for a while, you know, what these conventional systems, however, the bigger picture thing to pull the lens back and have sort of a macro perspective a little bit more is think about how, and this is another sort of Mollison and, and Holmgren, uh, uh, thinking thing is that if you only measure the yield on the one metric, so let's say it's output. We're talking about like conventional soy production and we measure these things on these economic measures of, okay, yes, uh, we, soy, soy output is up and perhaps inputs are up as well. But we're missing the bigger picture in that if the livelihood of the people in that community that live around that farm is affected by that farm, such as spraying Roundup uh, you know, and using Roundup ready seeds such as for Monsanto, and that has a negative effect on the people in that area. Well, that's a point against it. If the product of that crop, which is, you know, laced with Roundup and uh, has all kinds of negative health effects, well, then there's another, there's another point against it. If the, the if the, the excessive tillage and, um, you know, all, all the other negative ag things that are done to that soil have an effect on that land. That's a point against it. So I would actually make the case, and I don't think this would be very hard to do if you really were to analyze the data and you, and you, and you crossed a bunch of those metrics. It would be a very easy case to make that overall yields are significantly reduced. Yeah. Yes, it's up. But when you measure all these other things, it's down. And this is this all kind of comes back to what we were talking about with scarcity, is that the powers that be have convinced all of us that there is this scarcity 
And the solution to that scarcity is to, you know, one way that they put it to us is to increase GDP. We need to have more GDP, right? And so that's like the overall um, measurement of our success in the world is gross domestic product. And it's monoculture of the mind. That's what this is. It's monoculture on the farm. It's monoculture with the, the, the breakup of the family and the solutions as to how we now take care of ourselves. So it, it's monoculture thinking to go, oh, my children must go to daycare and then they must go to public school. Okay, M- mother and father m- must both work. Mother must go to work and because of that, now the kids can't be at home. Father must go work on this shitty monoculture farm that destroys his health, destroys the health of the soil, has all kinds of effects on the community around them. It's all this monoculture thinking that we always think that there's one way to do something. And it's basically this pyramid of monoculture thinking that kind of gets brought down to us. And so at the top of that pyramid, just say for this discussion, the, the argument is, well, we must increase GDP. And how do we increase GDP? Okay, now we go down the pyramid and now we say, okay, with farms, you must increase uh, profit. It's better to just grow one crop because then you can get a, a high output that can go get traded on a stock market uh, on the commodity exchange. And, and then, but in order to do that, you got to do X, Y, Z. So it's, it's always these, they put the path in front of you and you're just expected to go along. And again, I bring it back to the individual and our responsibility is we have to take responsibility for that, that we've accepted that and gone along for the ride. Now our role is to say, okay, they may have said that, but that doesn't mean I have to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So just, to, just to wrap that kind of point up, I really feel like the, I a hundred percent resonate really. I just talking about the yields in the beginning, you know what I mean? Because I mean, even if we just take the yields by themselves without, you know, bringing into account the costs, which really what we're talking about, the roundup, the health of costs, the soil costs, which is the main asset, all those things are costs in a business and they're costs that are totally hidden from the, from the, from the consumer and from all of us, really. I mean, we don't know what those costs are, you know, and, but even without taking into account that, I mean, the yields are going down astronomically. That's, that's across the board. We know that that's, that's, it's not anymore. It's not anymore a question. And it, the funny thing is that graph kind of yeah. seems dumb, just one line, <laughs> all the other points that are going down, the yields going down, the, the farmer's income's going down, but there's one line looks really healthy. The input companies. That line is that line's really nice straight upward line, which is a, which is a little bit a, which is a little bit depressing. I wanna I wanted to get your your opinion a bit, um, Curtis, that because I tell you the truth, a while ago we had someone on the show that was a bit controversial for our show, but I just felt I had to break the ice somewhere because what was going on was just too much. You know, let I me mean? just like I, I couldn't I couldn't handle anymore a little bit what's going on. I just had to someone on the show that was a bit like far out there. It was a really uh, like a local hero in Israel, Shai Danon, and he just talks about all the things, 5G, all the conspiracy theories and everything. But a lot of points there link up. And I, I think now, you know, for a while, things have been, you mentioned it before, a lot of the legal things that you talk about and the, and the um, kind of agendas, we could say, that have been going on underneath, you've, you've mentioned a few times, have been going on for quite a while now, a number of decades. But I think now, in this time, it's suddenly it just maybe it's just me, but it seems like a lot of that kind of stuff is like the shit is coming out in the wash. It seems like, and suddenly, like a lot of things that seem like they have nothing to do with each other are suddenly coming out. You know what I mean? There's like, uh, you know, uh, you know, oh, yeah. 
of sexual abuse happening in, in you know places of power. There's uh, you know there's the 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 ideological thing of, of the of the rights. Then there's like the really crazy, not making sense, all control of lockdowns and when to wear masks and when not to wear masks and you know, people riding hundred thousand people spitting on each other, that's that's no problem. <laughs> it's a just, yeah. just all this stuff uh, together is just crazy. But um yeah, I just it is. Idea that there, these hidden these things were so hidden. It's kind of an interesting kind of when I stand back and look at it it's kind of a bit, you know, amazing for me actually. This feels like there is something, a movement happening in the world that wants to be like, okay, let's just take all this crap and just put it out and, okay, let's see what you can do. And it seems like kind of like we're having a choice now. Okay, you can eat it again or you can say, okay, like this is a bit too much. I, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to accept going yeah. into the wash again with all this, with, with all this, uh, with all this crap basically. Yeah, and... and, and um yeah, I, to- I totally agree with that. Um, and again, as to why, I don't know. I, I, I love to speculate. Like when I'm on my own and, uh, you know, my, my family's sleeping, I usually stay up a couple hours after they go to bed. Uh, that's when I have time to think about these things and, and, and really kind of process as the why. I try to, in my sort of practical world where I need to get things done, I try not to get hung up on the why because you can chase that down so many rabbit holes that often don't really lead anywhere productive. Um, but I, I agree. And, and, you know, like I said, there's a, there's a, there could be a variety of reasons as to why all these things are coming out now. I sometimes like to think, um, and again, it doesn't have much of a practical uh, outcome for me, but I, I, I sometimes like to think that the reason things are coming out is there is some kind of spiritual transcendence happening in the world right now. I kind of, I kind of believe that uh, in my, in my heart, um, but I can't prove it. Um, but needless to say, a lot of those things you mentioned, child sex trafficking, um, you know, corruption and power, uh, you know, you, you, you didn't mention it, but, but sort of the, the unsustainability of the debt based system that we live in, yeah. all of these things, they could only do for so long until people start to notice, like, it's like, it's like when you're a kid and, you know, I got, in, I got into all kinds of trouble when I was little. I did all kinds of things. Like my parents split up early and I didn't have my dad around to really discipline me as much. And my mom was working to support us. And, you know, I got into all kinds of trouble. I, I was getting into all kinds of bad things and you can do them so many times and get away with it. But eventually because you do something so many times, you, each time you do it, it increases your chance of being exposed. And so it's only a matter of time until all these things have come out is there some kind of grand purpose with that? Maybe, but all, all we can say is, yeah, like everybody's known for a long time that the Catholic church was involved in pedophilia. And now it's coming out that it goes even beyond that. Right. And now we're finding that all over Hollywood. We're finding that all over people of power and politics. I mean, I wasn't surprised when any of this, this stuff came out on this, but it is. And, um, it should be one of the things that might wake people up and say, Hey, you know what? Um, this whole system that we've taken for granted our entire life, um, is a bunch of bullshit (laughs) and it's just a creation of another. That's all it is. It's not you. It has nothing to do with your divinity. It has nothing to do with intrinsically who you are as 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 an individual or man or a woman or a spirit. 
but it's there and you've accepted it. And so we need to start taking responsibility to say, Hey, that's not me. I'm not part of that. I'm not, I'm not party to that, that system. And that's where it comes in. I, I think where we start to st- start taking responsibility for everything that we do in our lives, because the more we partake in this system, the more we give it power. And it's, it, you know, I, I've seen that kind of power in my own life many times over and that, and you can see how, when you think about like, say ancient times of Egypt, you know, the, the Pharaohs were considered to be gods, right. Or at least like demigods. And you can kind of see that in our day-to-day lives. Like when you think about a lot of the bullshit that gets told about some random celebrity, right? That celebrity, when that person goes out in the world and people see him or her, they're awestruck by them. And that actually gives them some kind of power. And I think, I think what it comes down to on a metaphysical level is that our divine spirits are incredibly powerful. And the more we give other spirits or physical bodies that are, that, that are a representative of that spirit, the more power we give them, the more it actually gives them power and influence. And that's all this whole system is because, we, because we've assumed that the legal system as we know it today has the right and authority to tell us what we can or cannot do. That alone gives it power. Whether you agree and sign on the dotted line, it doesn't even matter. It's, it's the manifestation of that belief in your mind that manifests in your conversations it, it manifests in all your interactions and you repeat things over and over again. I think there's so much power in words. And, um, I, I've always, I've always really enjoyed the word spell is to spell a word, but is also to cast a spell and, 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 and uh, etymology with, with words is very interesting to me. And you can see how even right now with all this lockdown crap that's going on right now, it's the repetition of the narrative that is so powerful. And then you go and repeat those words. So the, the, the big one now and that I refuse to, uh, to say in my, in my day-to-day parlance, but I'll say it for the sake of our conversation is this new normal. And they, they've put that narrative out there and then people just say it. Another one is trust the experts. And so when all this, I, I knew this was bullshit. The beginning, it started the beginning, January 29th. And I was trying to get into the U S and, the, and I, they flew me back home. I was turned away. I started to see this whole thing. I saw the fear in the Seattle airport and I, I came home and immediately started further getting prepared. But, uh, but they, the, 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 I saw the prime minister of Canada getting out constantly every single day and repeating these mantras. And that's what they are, is they're mantras. You repeat them over and over again. The new normal. This is our new normal. We need to accept the new normal. We need to listen to the experts. Listen to the experts. Listen to the experts. Blah, blah, blah. And then they'll say, and I really pay attention to the read between the lines and listen to the little things that they say only once or twice. But I remember uh, this was April, I think it was April 13th, the Prime Minister of Canada got up there and he'd been re- repeating these mantras over and over again every single day. When the lockdown started, he was coming out, and they, he's locked down. I think he still is locked down in this this weird house and social distancing or whatever. And he comes out and he gives these speeches every day, and he would say all these mantras over and over again. And then there's this one thing he said on April 13th, which blew my mind uh, that he said it. He said, "I want to I want to recognize that on this 37th day, uh, what is it?" Um, 
when you have uh, anniversary and the 37th anniversary of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, I want to recognize that everything we're doing right now is voluntary. And I want to thank you for volunteering. Oh. And so he just gave everybody full disclosure that this is all bullshit and that you don't actually have to even legally listen to what they say. And, and, and what he said was 100% correct. I went and found uh, an, an article in the charter and the charter is actually a bullshit document too, because it has no authority because Canada is a, it's a de facto nation. I could go on about that for hours, but, but uh, even in the charter article seven of the charter, which kind of secures the right of the person. And that's the legal fiction that we all think we are, but we're not. But basically, it nullifies any of these things they do, such as the Quarantine Act or the Emergencies Act that they keep saying they're going to pull out that gives them authority to vaccinate you and do all this kind of crap. He just came out and said that it, it doesn't. But because you think it does, and that's where you partake, and that, that's where I've found so much liberation in actually understanding what is this Roman system we're using here. You know, this is all Roman Empire and, and, and the legal system as we know it has all these codes and acts and it's good to be familiar with your enemy. It's like Sun Tzu from, from the art of war is you got to know your enemy. And, and so, you know, you don't have to spend a lifetime on that, but it's good to have a basic framework of how they operate and what they do. And the way they trick you and the way they trick all of us is by throwing a massive amount of words out there, repeating some, but overwhelming you with a tsunami of words so that for the most part, you won't even look at them. So I, I, I guarantee you in this de facto geographical nation I live in called Canada, I guarantee you over 90% of people in here have not read a single act or statute uh, of the law in, in, in Canada. They don't know anything. And, and all you have to do is a basic amount of research. That's why I put out as my last Liberty on the Land episode, I said, I'm going to do it for you guys. I'm going to prove to you that Canada, the nation you think we live in, doesn't exist on the land. And there is no proof for it. I'm going to show you going through the foundational documents. And I've spent a year doing this stuff to find out where to go and what to look for. Because there's so much out there that it's overwhelming, right? But I'm going to prove that Canada exists on the land and it exists as a nation that you think it does and has any jurisdiction over you as a man or woman. It doesn't. And I went through all the foundational documents and showed all the definitions that it only exists on the water. It's a maritime system and Canada only claims to exist on what's called the territorial sea or territorial waters or internal waters or foreshore or seabed or rivers. It's, it's insane, but it's what it is. And so it's important to understand that because if you don't know, then how do you respond? And there's an amazing amount of liberation that we can find through this stuff by just knowing what they say. Because there's other remedy we can find too. There's other ways we can stop the, the, them railroading us, taking away our land, taking away our children, vaccinating our children, whatever it is. There's other remedies, but, but the path of least resistance, and I always default to the path of least resistance because that is the easiest way to function in the natural world, in my opinion. And the path of least resistance is to know your enemy and use your own enemy's tactics against them. Just as Sun Tzu talks about redirecting the energy of the of your enemy so your enemy comes at you instead of blocking the punch it's the redirection of the punch it's the sort of the tai chi 
um, movements with this. And, and, and we can, we can use these things cause they're all there for us. And, and for some reason, the powers that be have codes that they operate by. And the one, one that I've identified just by reading through the statutes, I can't find a, a code that they say they do this or why they do this, but they do is that they tell you everything they're doing. It's all there. They just tell you so many times and in so many words that it's overwhelming and most people won't spend the time to look at that. But they do. They tell you everything they're going to do. And it's all there to find. But you got you to spend a little bit of time to look at it. I'm curious if you think from your, from your research, because you went very deep and, and, like, and I agree with it. It's your local area. It's Canada. I'm, I'm curious what do you think, how much of, of what you discovered applies, maybe not necessarily in the details because you kind of the Commonwealth, et cetera, et cetera. But how much do you feel applies of what you learned applies outside to, could, could apply also to other countries, maybe the start? 100%. Yeah? 100%. Yes. The world, the world, the modern world as we know it all abides by a system called the UCC, is the, the Uniform Commercial Code. Every league, if you have a legal system, so basically in your, in your country, like, let me, let me, let me ask you this in Israel, is there a bar association? Uh, So if if you, if you want to be a lawyer, you have to, you have to be a member of the bar. Right. Right. So if there's a bar association in your country, you're part of the uniform commercial code. And that is the framework of all legal systems. And I'm not necessarily opposed to the bar or the uniform commercial code. It's actually, you know, I've done it. I'm an I'm a fairly multifaceted entrepreneur. I'm involved in multiple business enterprises. I've been involved in multiple uh, partnerships and formed multiple corporations. And I've done all this kind of shit. And I've had multiple lawyers that I've worked with to write these contracts. And and, and the the thing that's interesting about it, once you start to dissect, what does a contract in commerce look like? So, uh, give you one example. I, I, I formed a partnership not too long ago to, to form a, a, an entity in the United States to do business in the United States. So we had a contract. That contract and the way it's written and the language that's used is exactly the same language and formula that's used to write acts, statutes, or codes within the legal system of the government, what we think is, is, is the government. It's all the same boilerplates. And so the reason that is, is because all legal systems. So anytime there's a bar association in your country, and that's the legal framework that everything is written upon, that system has commercialized everything. So it's corporatized and commercialized everything. And you can see to to say that we live in a corporate world. um, If I were just to say that kind of plainly and bluntly, people would agree with that because they kind of know what the thrust of what I'm getting at, right? You know what I mean, right? We've corporatized everything. Everything's corporation and it's all these big corporations that run everything. I mean, we all kind of know that. But the, the thing that we don't, that most people don't realize is that not only is your government a corporation, but the shell that you operate in is also a corporation. So your birth certificate name, some people call it the trade name, some people call it the straw man. Uh, in legal definitions, they call it the person. That all capital letters name, and I don't know what it looks like in um, Hebrew because I can't read Hebrew, but it, you know, I can give you one example here. Um, you know, here's, a, here's an old credit, here's a credit card that I no longer use, but I'll, I'll hide the number. The name on there is 
Curtis Stone in all capital letters. That is an avatar of me. It's not me because my mother never wrote my name in all capital letters, unless that's just your style of handwriting. Nobody writes in all capital letters. It doesn't actually make sense in the English language, but corporations do. So if you, if you start a corporation called the eco IQ podcast, LLC or incorporated, when you register that through whatever entity that does your corporate registrations or filings, it's going to be in all capital letters. And so the, this is the conversion to a corporation. This has been done to every individual born on this planet. And I could really go down a rabbit hole as to where that all goes. Cause it does go really deep and it, and, and it does kind of go back to the central authority, this global central authority, but there's no point to, to go down that rabbit hole. You can find, as I show in the Canadian documents that the person, so we, in common parlance, we think the word person is just, you and me were persons. We, we use that word in common parlance and that's correct in common parlance. If you look up in Oxford dictionary, which is the, which is the common uh, reference for common English, you'll find that person is just a, 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 a legally, it always includes a bunch of things. And, and this is what I, what this is the first thing that I started with in that last, that last podcast was to clearly define the word includes because, and that's what they want. The point is to keep you lost because then if you don't know anything about the system, you won't question it. You'll just kind of go along with it. But once you understand that the word includes means that and only that, and I reference the legal maximum of the word, which is the, the, the root of that word legally includes means the inclusion of one is the exclusion of everything else. And so when you see in legal definitions, like, as in the Canadian Interpretations Act, <clears throat> the definition of person includes a corporation. That's literally what it says. It means that a person is a corporation. And so that name, that all capital letters name, is a corporation on your birth certificate, your driver's license, whatever. It's actually a bunch of different corporations because they have different ways of writing it, whether it be Curtis, comma, Alan Stone, or Stone, comma, Curtis Allen, like first, middle, last, last, middle, first, so on and so, or last, first, middle, whatever. Those are all different corporations and they're used in different ways. And you can even go down a rabbit hole on how they're used and what they're used for, but you don't really need to. What's, what's important to understand is that you have been corporatized. And the reason you've been corporatized is that by the creation of a legal entity, now we take off responsibility and liability because what's the point of a corporation, right? You, you ask most people who do business, why would you have a corporation? Why not just do business as an individual? Well, the reason, part of the reason why, and it is complicated, but part of the reason why is that you can get liability off. And so the government will now assume liability for you. Yeah. And that's just another method of control. As we going back to what we talked about originally, there are, um, there's uh, liberties and then there's uh, conveniences. And so it, because of these conveniences, we've lost liberties and that, and that's a huge part of it. And so now we we're all, we're living in the matrix in the sense that we're all going around on this world thinking that we're this legal person. And that's why every time a police officer pulls you over, the first thing he asks for is your name and your identification. Well, that name is a legal fiction that now puts you into their jurisdiction because their jurisdiction is in water. And that's why in, in, our, uh, in the English language, we have what's called a citizenship. 
the citizenship is the corporate vehicle to navigate the territorial waters. I know it sounds crazy. Yeah. And if people are, are listening to this and going, what the hell is he talking about? Go to my, my last episode of Liberty on the Land. Yeah. Go to libertyontheland.com. I'll have, actually, no, you know what? Right now, go to YouTube. I'm going to have all of them up on BitChute and Library soon. I'm actually going to take everything off YouTube wow. for that. But, but go check it out. And um, you can... And I lay it out. I show you, you don't need any interpretation. You don't need any theory. I'll show you straight up what it says in the law. And it's, it's all very clear, but that, but that's essentially where we're at. So we're, we're in this sort of matrix system where we're all thinking we're this one thing, we're this thing, and that's how they control us. And because as in Bible, is in, in the Bible, as in, in Genesis, God gave man and woman dominion. What does that mean? Well, that means that from the creation, from the creator, men and women are born onto this earth. We have dominion over the land. The land is the place that you and I sit. You're not on the water. As a man, you're sitting on land right now. In Israel, wherever you are, you're on the land. I'm on the land here in this place called British Columbia. Our persons, our citizenships are in this metaphorical water. And that's the metaphor they use. And that's where they claim jurisdiction. And it's literally written that way. It's so weird in Canada. And, and you'll find this. You start to read through the statutes and codes of your country. You'll find different ways that it's written. But I've certainly seen it for um, Australia and New Zealand. It's basically the same as Canada. It, 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 and even the acts, are, they have an interpretations act and all this stuff. It's all the same thing. In Canada, it's so weird because you want to find the core. What's the root of the citizen? What is the citizen? you arrive on a document called the citizenship act and it starts to define what a citizen is what is a citizenship and then it takes you to an act called the shipping act <laughs> which if you were to go and read the shipping act without cross being cross-referenced from the citizenship act you'd think you were reading an act that describes how commercial vessels like uh, cargo ships um, and, and, and boats or whatever are managed and delegated within the legal system. But it's, well, it is, but it's also how citizens are managed and delegated. And because the citizenship is the vehicle to navigate the waters that they've created metaphorically. It's so crazy, man. It, it's, I know it sounds insane, but you can literally find it in, and so, you know, in, in my last podcast, I go from I start with the Interpretations Act, just kind of lay out the framework of what Canada is according to their rules, where it exists, what is the legal person. Then I go to the Citizenship Act. Then I end up on the Shipping Act. And then I end up in the Oceans Act. And I show how it's all water. It's all territorial water. And, and, and that vessel they've created is to navigate those waters because the man and woman itself are, is sovereign. We're on the land. They don't have any jurisdiction over you. Yes, at the end of the day, the government's just a gang with a bunch of guns, right? And so, you know, we got to keep that in mind too. But according to their laws and statutes or their, their, their codes and statutes, that's all it is. And I, 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 I'm not f familiar with Israeli law at all. So I can't say for sure, but I, I, I would guess if you have a bar association, you're part of the Uniform Commercial Code and that's all the legal system and statutes and codes come from that and you'll end up in territorial waters once you start to really dig into your your wow. your wow. system that's a bomb uh, just before just before i go into my next point Curtis, i want to ask just can you just repeat a little bit more 
Um, again, for, for the listeners, why, why would we be made into corporations? <laughs> what is, that, uh, what is that, that, that specific thing? Why are we made into corporations? I'm just, I want to uh, articulate that. Well, the, the reason you're made into a corporation, yeah, so the reason you're, well, I can't tell you why is in, I don't know why they decided to do that, except that once you're a corporation, you're now in their jurisdiction because they created that corporation, not you. So on your birth certificate, like, I can show you one of mine without, you know, putting out too much information on there, but like we get this piece of paper, right? That's the birth certificate. That is the corporate entity that they created. But the thing, you know, in, in Canada, and it's similar in the United States, you know, cover some of this up as well, but like this is called the live statement of birth. Mm-hmm. that's the document that your mother and father filled out when you were born. That's a recording of the event of your birth. So they, on that, they put the date and the time, how much you weighed the gender of the baby and all that, <clears throat> that gets sent to in Canada, a, an agency called the vital statistics agency. And then the government takes that. So that's evidence of a man being born mm-hmm. at a particular time at a particular place. In a way, what what people in the sovereign movement call that is that's evidence of the creator. So you are, or or or, uh, or the creditor, because you're the creation on the land. You're of the land. You're born on the land. You're part of that system. And then the other instrument, the 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 the, the fiction, the legal fiction they create, sending now back a, a document with all capital letters, name organized in a certain way, with a little number on the bottom, which is kind of, people call it a QCIP number. That's the evidence of the debtor. And so the corporate entity is an entity that's created by the system so that it can be controlled by the system and it's a debt instrument. And so you really, when you really want to drill down on this stuff, the further you get, what you'll find is that in our fake money, money system, like, uh, you know, are you familiar with how money is created with central banks and all that stuff? Have you kind of gone down that rabbit hole? Yes, I mean, yeah, we've got, I mean, we definitely haven't gone down it on the podcast, but me personally, I mean, you, if maybe just like, let's cover it a little bit briefly for. Yeah. Cover it a little bit. So, so, you know, all, mo- all countries have a central bank, you know, most people um, who have been down the rabbit hole a little bit are familiar with the, the, the U S federal reserve bank. And there was a guy named G. Edward Griffin who wrote a book a lot a number of years ago, it might have been from the 70s, uh, called The Creature of Jekyll Island. And it basically exposed that the central bank that you think is this government thing is actually just a private corporation. And it prints money out of thin air. It just creates money. And they just put a bunch of digit. Now it's all computerized. But the question you want to ask is like, what gives that money value? And so in Canada here, the Bank of Canada is essentially the same thing. Some people actually speculate that the, the Bank of Canada is actually the 13th Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, because according to the... I just yeah. want to point out for our listeners one thing just before we go into that. I'm um, just a bit of a, like a, a preamble for that is that at one point, actually, when you actually had money, it actually said on it, this is worth gold. So if you actually went into the bank, you could actually get yes. at some point that got like sold off and you, you ended up being, okay, this is actually not worth anything. This is just my promise that it's worth something else. Yeah. There's no gold anymore. Yeah. 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 So, so, so at, at various different points in history, it actually all happened around the same 10 years. So in, um, in, uh, well, not, 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 
Entirely. So in the U.S., it was before the inception of the Federal Reserve, money was issued by the government and it was backed by a solid uh, asset, which was gold at the time. They all lost that in 1971. Uh, in Canada, we lost it in 19... I believe it was 1973 was the creation. They changed the Bank of Canada and then now they just started issuing debt. So debt is given... So, so the way it works with central banks is that a government issues a bond... And so they'll, they'll pass a bond to the Federal Reserve or the Bank of Canada or maybe the Bank of Israel, whatever it is, that says, we want to create X amount of dollars. So we're going to issue a bond from the government to create money. And then the, then, then the bank prints that money at debt, at interest to the government. So what gives that bond value? <clears throat> because it's not the land. Because in Canada... The, the 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 de facto government doesn't have jurisdiction on the land according to their own acts and statutes they only have jurisdiction on the water but the resource that is the most valuable that they own is all of your names so all of your birth certificates if you're born in Canada and you and you have a birth certificate prior to 1985 and you look on the back of it it says straight up on there revenue receipt for treasury use only so later in the years they started to hide this because because people were waking up to this and they go eh, we better kind of bury this a little bit so people are don't doesn't seem so obvious but it's printed on bond paper so and, and you can find all this stuff in the codes i'm really going down a rabbit hole here but but basically banks can issue money that is debt because it's tied to our legal fictions and our legal fictions were obliged to pay taxes. So, you know, you look at the income tax code of Canada, it says persons and residents shall pay income tax. Well, what's a person, what's a resident. They both have corporate definitions that basically means they're fictions created by the government. So as long as you're that fiction, you're obligated to pay money every year. So it's a slavery system. It's a voluntary slavery system, but it's a slavery system. And our bond, the bonds that the government issues to the bank have value because all these poor suckers who think they're those names will pay into the system for their entire lives. That's what gives it value. And so that's kind of where, that's kind of where money comes from. And uh, it's a debt-based system because it's all based on the fact that those poor suckers promise to pay at a later date that they'll eventually pay that money in that bond. And so that's what, you know, and just like on a surface level where that system becomes so intrinsically dangerous is right now is governments are printing so much money that they're continuously increasing the debt. So they're printing more money to be available to spend faster than it can be created by the individuals paying those taxes paying those fees or whatever it is to, to pay that money back. And so the pool of debt is increasing way quicker and it's, and it's, it's getting, you know, unsustainable. And, and there are a lot of economic uh, ramifications to that, which I, I'm not an expert on. You can listen to guys like Max Kaiser or um, Peter Schiff or, or real economists, guys have been talking about this stuff forever who, who, who articulate this far better than I can. But this debt-based system is starting to collapse on its own weight because the debt is so huge that we can't pay it back fast enough. Mm -hmm. Wow, wow. That's like incredible. Let, let me just see if I got this right there, Curtis. Basically what you're saying 
is the, uh, the, the, the government or the entity, whatever we want to call it, um, a, another corporation that is not on the land, that's like their sovereignty is on the water, which is basically kind of a metaphor because they can't control anything on the land because that is like a accepted God-given right. Anything that's born on the land has personal sovereignty. Yes, but, yes, but there's no sovereignty on the water. Yeah. The, on the water is slavery. Sovereignty is on the land. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, and, then, and then basically we're saying, okay, you, if the, and kind of an avatar has been created, and if you voluntarily in, enter, in, enter into that avatar, suddenly you become responsible for all the things that, are, that the avatar is responsible for. Is that is that kind of uh, I mean on on one leg so we so to speak. yeah kind of yeah th- th- think about it like this way yeah think about it this way just just for the sake of keeping the metaphor consistent so in the legal system we're on the water and in the, in the common law which is like just the law of right and wrong that's what law real law is so simple law is like what we know naturally do no harm you know, like basic stuff like that. Um, so the common law is on the land, the legal system is on the water. And so in order for them to get you onto the water, they create a boat for you to go in. It's the ship, it's the citizenship. So you get in that boat and now you're on their water. And now when you're, when you're in their water, you're susceptible to all of the pirate ships that are, that are all around you that can knock you down and take you here and there. And then they offer certain protections on the water. So we'll sell you, uh, we'll sell you some better sails, right? We'll sell you a faster boat. We'll sell you this and this. And this. It's, all, it's all commercial. The commercial system all stems back from the Holy Roman Empire. It's called the law merchant system. It's with the root of the UCC and all this stuff. And in, 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 the, in the Holy Roman Empire, when Rome had all the Mediterranean dominated North Africa, Middle East, whatever, they had this system to to create contracts, went to send boats from here to there to move goods and go on missions to get things. And the the legal framework of that contract system is what exists today in the Uniform Commercial Code and and all of the the legal system as we know it. So it, it's really about being on the water, and and that's and that's where it is because on the land we exist sovereign. But the thing is, that's tricky is like, you know, to, to make it sound a little bit more complicated is that we're on the land, but there's rivers that come into the land and those assholes on their boats can get in the land on their rivers and they can take our stuff and where it, where a further layer of sovereignty and protection comes from is called the ecclesiastic law, which is the law of the church. And in many ways, it's tied to divinity in a way. I don't want to get too deep on this because people kind of get lost, but there is the ecclesiastic law, which is the law of trusts and the trust law. And on the, on the, on the American dollar bill, it says, in God we trust. And so some people might be familiar with trusts. And a trust is kind of like a corporation where you, you set up an entity. There's an executor, a, a general executor, there's a trustee, and there's a beneficiary. There's always three parties in a trust. And the way that, like, and in a way, beyond the legal system and the corporate system, above that, everything is in trust. Like, your country is a trust. The British, the, the, the British monarchy is a trust. The queen is a trust. The pope is a trust. And they set these trusts up. And they basically trick you into being these trusts. Like your name, your corporate name is actually a trust and you're the trustee of that name. Somebody else is the beneficiary and somebody else is the executor. 
And so it's, it's, it's this complicated thing, but the way, the way that people I know in this, in this space have been able to kind of protect themselves from the, the pirates call them, call the government, the pirates and, and the, the, the conquistadors out in the water is they have their sovereignty on the land. And in order to protect their sovereignty on the land, they create another layer called a trust. And that trust exists where there's an executor, a, a beneficiary, and a trustee. So you can now protect the wealth that you create on the land and you build a castle around it. And that's the trust. Then you can get in your boat and go out on the territorial waters or the rivers and you can play in the commercial system and you can play that game. You can go out and you can make money and you can have a bank account and you can do all those things. But then every time you get a bounty, so let's just say you got to go out in the waters to make a living. You got to go to the waters to make money, which is their system. It's a debt-based system, but you got to use it because that's the world we're in. You got to go out in the waters. You got to make some money. You got to do these things. Then you bring your boat back on the river to your castle and you put that wealth into the trust. Then you go back out on the waters and you can do it again. And if your boat gets taken down, you're not going to lose everything because you brought your stuff back to the castle. <laughs> so that's kind of that's kind of how the, the system that, as I've gathered, it kind of works. And, and and the more you explore these things, what I discovered is that all the elites, like I'm not talking about uh, entrepreneurs that made a bunch of money. I'm talking about like sort of the nine families of the world that own everything as we know it. You know the the Rothschild family, the the uh, the, the Rockefeller family, all these crony names you can list off. Right, those guys never paid taxes because they were never, they, they were never legally obliged to, because they've, they've had everything since their inception set up in trust. And so a trust, uh, you know, a trust is not actually subject to the legal system. It's above the legal system because there's three kinds of law. As we know it, there's the legal system, there's the ecclesiastic system, and then there's the common law and all of them interact in some ways, but it's the use and understanding of all three that the elites kind of do everything from. It's why like in the city of London, you know, the city of London is its own uh, jurisdiction. It's its own actual country, just like the Vatican is just like Washington DC is. Those are bona fide facts. I would challenge anybody to prove me wrong on that. You can find all the documents that prove that for a fact, those things are their city States. They have their own constitutions and everything. They're, the, the, all those people that operate within those things use trusts. It's why like all these major bankers in, in city of London never pay taxes and were never obliged to because they've operated in trust and trusts are in the private. They don't exist in the public sector. They exist in the, the real private sector. The real private sector is the sector that doesn't have registries. It doesn't have, it doesn't have any of this. It's all private. And, and people that are free, like bona fide free men, they are in the private. Whereas when you're using your trade name, your, your, your corporate name, you're in the public. And when you're in the public, you're owned and ob ob obligated to that system. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Incredible. Curtis. I really, really hope <laughs> the people watching this really get a uh, realize. And I, I really encourage anyone that's listens to this episode now live or that's, um, or, or you listen to this recorded, I really encourage you to re rewind this and go over what, what Curtis just said now because I really feel that this is incredible stuff. Even if you don't, okay, I don't want to get into the, it's too much a rabbit hole. You know, just even if you take the metaphors and understand what's going on here because there is a legal system. I mean, I also, I'm just kind of trying to grapple with myself because there's a lot of points I kind of learned in different areas about trusts and what is a corporation, you know, for business and everything. But to put all these together in this metaphor, 
I mean, it's an incredible metaphor, even if I don't understand all the legal levels of it. Just this metaphor of there is common law. Now, the common law, as I understand we're saying, really common law is basically your personal sovereignty, and that extends over the land. You know, you have a right to a certain amount of things because you were born, you're, you're part, you're a creation. And that goes way back to what we were talking about right in the beginning of the interview, right? That just like we are... Yeah, it, it's... it's yeah, it's literally, the, it's reality. Co- common law is the here and the now, right here where we are, right? Yeah. The, the legal is is the fiction. It's the it's it's the thing that's kind of created. It's fake. It's just it's just a, it's just an imaginary system. And the ecclesiastic is the tie to divinity. So that's and that. Uh, that sorry, Curtis. That that's really the point. I just before I get, I really want to close. That's the point I really wanted to make clear to to everyone. And I think that it's like really hit home for me. You have common law. Even we just take those two things, it's powerful. You have common law and then you have this legality fiction kind of thing, which is why it's on the water. It's an incredible metaphor of, of, uh, of, of a yeah. fictional thing that's going on. And if you tie into that, but what I really found was important, it really empowering for me, just listening to that is you, when you brought in the trusts, because if we, if we take yeah. out and if you're on the land, the problem is if I'm on the land and this like, you know, entity is on the water and I, the, now, like you said, the water is also kind of its own reality. We live in a world of debt. I mean, I can say, throw my hands up and say, you know, screw all this debt. I'm going to go and live in the forest and, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever will happen, whatever will happen. Okay, but then you can't have a business. You can't do any business. You can't do any trade. You can't come you can't out. can't do anything. We've got to face the reality. So um, uh, this idea of a trust is incredible because, I mean, you're on the land. Now, I need to interact with the water, so how do I do that? And this basically what you're saying is, a, is, a, is the trust is like a boat. And I can get in that boat and, and interact in that in those waters and come back with what I get. Well, the well, the tr- well, ki- kind of, kind of. The tr- the trust is actually the trust is more like the castle on the land, mm-hmm. and it allows you to put things in trust because, like the mo- the motto of the elite is control everything, own, own nothing. Yeah, and it, it's. It's similar to how corporations work. It's because it's like it's an it's an externalized thing. But even if you think about the word trust, trust has multiple meanings, right? Like right now, I'm talking about trust as in uh, it's this entity that's created. But really, what it comes down to is trust. So we trust one another. Um, where it came from was in the Roman empire when soldiers were going off to go to war and, and and basically push for the Roman empire, they put everything in trust. So they trusted their land titles to somebody else to take care of while they were gone. And then when they came back, they resumed the role. And so they created a trust. Uh, They would have been at that, at that moment, the executor of the trust, and then they would have appointed a trustee to manage their land. And so for the time being that they're gone, that trust uh, is put upon the trustee and the beneficiary would be like their family, right? So here, you're going to be the, the, the steward of my land while I'm gone. You're the trustee. Uh, I created the trust, so I'm the executor of the trust. And um, my family is the beneficiary. So you're going to take care of, make sure my, you know, my land is taken care of so my wife and family feel safe. And then that trust is collapsed when the guy returns. So the trust is temporarily created. And it's, it's, it, the trust is amazing it, 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 because it is metaphysical, right? Like 
You and I, we can say we trust each other, but we can't physically prove that trust exists, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like we can write a document and say, okay, here, here's, here's, here's our trust that we created. And that's evidence that we, that we're agreeing to trust one another, but it's not like a thing that exists in reality, right? It's, it is a metaphysical thing. And that's kind of from what I gather at least. Um, and I'm just sharing what I've learned. Like I'm not here to, uh, make the claim that I'm like the ultimate authority on this stuff. You can go and and find far, far better people that, that know much more about this than I do, but I've, I've spent a number of time researching it. But so that trust exists, but, but, only exists between you and I. We created that trust. So we're the creators. We create the trust. We decide that we trust one another. We appoint certain responsibilities um, and liabilities to, to one another. And I go, I go off to war. And then when I come back, I now come and I, I take back the trust and then the trust is collapsed. Like another example of a trust that's used in common, in com- in the common world is you order a package off Amazon. Okay. So you paid for something online. Now that, so you, you paid for the service. Now that, pa- that package gets shipped out. When it leaves the hands of Amazon, it's now in trust to a third party. And so you, ha- you, you were the, you're the beneficial owner. You're the beneficiary. You paid somebody to act as trustee. And then when that package arrives to you, the trust is collapsed. Literally. Trust, the trust that you gave to that third party to make sure that package gets delivered to you. Now the trust has collapsed because the trustee has arrived. Now you're, the trust is done because now you have your product and it's done. So that's what trusts do. And if, if you really you know, go further into it, you can see how trusts are created. They're always dated. Like Trusts can be collapsed because they're created for a purpose. And and really what happened with, uh, with Canada is the queen, when Queen Elizabeth gave her coronation oath, you can actually go online and listen to it. It's quite, it's quite surreal because she uses the word trust. I'm giving you my, uh, um, I will take your trust and, and you can trust in me. And, and trust means a couple things, right? And so they, cre- they created a trust and they've held all of this corporate stuff in trust to them. And we are the beneficiaries, but we never really got all the stuff. So the trust is in perpetuity, but it, it can be collapsed. And there are people that go and do that, but that's a whole, that's a, that's a massive conversation. I really, I really appreciate the, the, the dive. And I, I, I want to like stipulate that. I mean, normally we, this show is about ecological connection and I really see personally the very clear connection because part of ecological connection is business. I think it's really an essential part of, of having a connection to the land. We need to be able to, to engage in business and be fully empowered and have total sovereignty over, over ourselves. So that's, it brings me to something I wanted to touch with, with in our conversation is this idea of sovereignty. Recently, I, I kind of got onto this idea of sovereignty over the body. I have full sovereignty because of the current situation. I have full sovereignty over my body. Nobody can yeah. tell me what to do with my body except the creator, that's it. Nobody yep. has, has sovereignty over that. And if anyone says, I'm going to tell you what to do with your body, the answer is no. It doesn't, there is no, I mean, yes. it's a common law thing. Now, the thing that I, I started listening to when I started listening to your content uh, and diving with your content a bit more, Curtis, is this idea of sovereignty suddenly seemed to extend beyond my body and kind yes. of the land. 
that that's yes. kind of something that I, I and that's kind of what I wanted to touch on now because I want to kind of bring it back home because we talked about a lot of legal systems the way and that's our reality right now and if we want to engage you know and we want to share our message and we want to make better connection between ourselves between the land our ecologies our, ourselves we need to interact with that with that system we need to know how to do that in a way that we're protected and we look after our sovereignty but before that I want to get into this thing of how is yeah. sovereignty extended to the land, not just about, you know, no one can tell me what to do with my body, but no one should yes. be what to do yep. with the land. That's kind of the, the point I want yes. to open up a little bit now because I think it's critical. Well, the, co- the, 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 core, the, the thing that really brings it all together is the mind, body, spirit. So the body, let's start with the body, the sovereignty of the body, sovereignty of the man, the body is on the land. So the, the the correlation in the mind, body, spirit goes directly to the legal, the ecclesiastic, and the uh, common law. This is I, I'm kind of giving you. We're getting into some philosophy here, okay? So because like what what I'm saying now directly, I just want to fully disclose that I'm kind of getting a bit philosophical on this, okay? So this is what I've this is what I've parsed together is that just as we had the ecclesiastic, the law, L-A-W, is the land, or sorry, is the, yeah, is the land, the A is the air we breathe, which is, which is the connection to us. And then the water is the, is the W-L-A-W, the water is the, is the, is the um, statute law, the, the, the water system, right? The, the, the legal system exists on the water. And so the common, let's go in the land. So the land is connected to the body because the body is on the land. So that's the common law. That's where our bodies exist. The A, the ecclesiastic law, the things that we can't exist, but we know are there, which is such as our trust, that is the spirit. So that's the, the spirit in which we connect. And, and when we trust one another, which, is, which, which you could easily make the case, is, is a spiritual thing. And then the water is the mind because the legal system that we understand it only exists in the mind, right? That this whole idea that, that these acts and statutes and codes mean anything to us are completely a construct of our minds uh, that some, somebody else made that up. You know, a, a good friend of mine who's far more educated in this stuff than I, he always says, you know, five guys sat around a table and they basically said, how do we take control of the entire world? They drafted it up from their minds. The creators, five creators came, came out of this and said, let's create this construct that everybody believes. And so the mind, body, spirit connects directly to the land, ecclesiastic, and the, the legal system. And they're all, they're all interconnected in one way or another. But as we, as we live in this world, our bodies are on the land. And, and so much of what we uh, see in our world we have to take control and, and, and the land is an extension of our bodies just as, as you and I, as guys on the land who understand things about permaculture and growing food, we can extend our bodies by, you know, plowing up a field and planting some crops, putting some trees in the ground, pruning those trees and uh, putting in some water harvesting systems, all kinds of things that we talk about in, in permaculture or regenerative agriculture. Um, that's the land, right? And then we can go and we can have, uh, relationships with one another's with one another and their trusts. Like the, the beautiful thing about the trust and how it in this sort of ecclesiastic ecclesiastic system is that 
you have so many trusts in your life that you can't even comprehend them. And is there a public register for those trusts? Like, is there, is there a public register to define, classify and, uh, register the relationship that you and your wife have to take responsibility for your children each day, right? Like that's not written anywhere, right? That's, that's just trust that you guys assume you assume that you trust one another. You assume that, you know, when, 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 when we, before we did this podcast, I trusted that when you said we're going to start at 8am, that we're going to start at 8am. We created these trusts. These are, these are things that don't exist in the physical, but we know exist. Right. And I, and, and I think that directly correlates to the spiritual understanding that sometimes in our bodies, we have a hard time understanding. And then again, on the mind, the water, this legal system, all these words, right? All, all, everything that we read and write um, doesn't matter. What, doesn't even totally matter if it's a thing that's constructed in the legal system as we know it. It could be a book. All these things are are constructs that the mind created, and and it all kind of comes together because when you read statutes and codes and, and and anything in the legal system, it's all a bunch of words. It's just a bunch of words that were created from somebody else's mind. I, I definitely want to bring something up there because the words, this idea that words are powerful. I mean, I knew that before also um, something I learned quite deeply, uh, actually psychologically and spiritually words can be very powerful. I mean, words like I'm not good enough, that has a very powerful effect on someone. So, I mean, even if we go to that level, we're not going on that level now. We're talking about legal words, but the idea that words are powerful, I think is very, very uh, relevant. Even me, I speak Hebrew, English words, they have a resonance and a power to them. So, I mean, definitely, definitely legal. When we come down to legal, it's also as a power. And I, something you said that really resonated with me a lot and was very powerful in your story because you have a small story that I just want to um, ask you to, to relate to people to, to give an idea about this power of words. Um, you said you've got four choices when it comes to like a legal agreement. A legal proposition. Yeah, and, four doors. Yeah, no, I mean, and I yes. asked, go through that, and that was agree, not agree, silence, or conditional agree. And you said something really interesting. Yes. All four, the only there's only one that it will actually get you kind of like out of that. It gives you power in that agreement, whether to that proposition, whether to yes. That was the conditional agree. And I really be like if you could share yes. this story from 2016. Because I think it's a very powerful story, and 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 you know what the upshot of that was. Is that, you know, in 2016, let us know that a little bit about that story. Yeah, yeah. So, so back in 2016, um, I was learning a little bit about this stuff. I I, I was uh, I was introduced to a guy uh, named Cal Washington a number of years ago. We became friends, and uh, really a mentor to me. Um, uh, opened my eyes to a lot of things. And Cal is a, um, is a man who sees things that are beyond this world. If that, if that makes any sense, he's uh he was kind of like, you know, the movie, the matrix Morpheus, um, kind of that guy. It's ironic too, because Cal is black and bald as well. And, uh, he kind of red pilled me to a lot of things. And, and so I learned about this, this whole thing called the conditional acceptance. And, and from what I've parsed together, and again, uh, this is kind of just touching on my experience because I can't, I don't know what acts and statutes and codes to show you that this exists. But one thing I've learned is, uh, and just through my own experience, is that there's four doors you can go through when you're interacting with 
anything in the legal system. That is, as you said, letter. And it says, uh, we want you to do X, Y, Z, or you're in violation of code, blah, blah, blah. And you need to do this. So they send you a letter. You can say, yes, okay, I will obey. I will do that. Or you can say, no, F you, I'm not doing that, whatever. Then you're going to get in all kinds of trouble and they're going to railroad you. The third thing is you can go silent. You know, the cop always says, you have the right right to remain silent. Um, All three of those are a form of acceptance. The first one is an obvious obvious form of acceptance because you said, yeah, I accept. The second one where you said... Um, but it is once you understand how the system works and that you just said, no, screw you, but you never, you never, um, stood on who you are. So you're still the person, you're still the corporate entity that they created. They own your ass when you're that in that skin, when you're wearing that hat, they own your ass. So to to deny is pointless. Um, so that, that's a form of acceptance to go silent is to not say anything. And then they'll always put at the bottom of a letter that says, if you don't respond within this time, you're going to be subject to this and this and this and these courses of action. So uh, that's called it. You're, you're muted there for a sec. I just wanted to let our listeners know, just a um, little bit of background because it's, I think it's quite relevant. Um, at this story that Curtis is telling right now, uh, that you're telling right now, uh, um, it's, it came about because the, uh, some government entity wrote a letter to you and said, your microgreens are a dangerous, yeah. you need to, you need to desist, cease and desist. Basically, we're going to set up a, a, a meeting with you. And if we find there's like a suspicious, whatever. Yeah. So let, 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 let me just, let me just set this up and I'll, and I'll explain yeah. that. Oh, so, so, so it's all good. Um, and so, um, number four on the, where was I on? Uh, yeah. So, so just, you know, on, on silence, they give you a tacit agreement that says, okay, if you don't respond in this time, you're going to be subject to this law. So to be silent is to accept as well. The fourth door, we call it the four doors that you can go through. The fourth door is to accept the offer, but then offer other conditions because, because everything is based on the uniform commercial code, the law merchant system, everything is a offer to do commerce. It's just a business system we live in. Everything's commercialized everything's corporatized, everything's capitalized. Literally, it's capitalized, all caps letters. Um, and so I, so in 2016, I had this government agency reach out to me and said, okay, we want you to, uh, you need to do this. So we're going to come and inspect your farm. We're going to do this. It's going to take four hours, blah, 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 blah. We're going to show up at this time. And they basically wrote the letter as if there was no option. It was like, we're coming to your place. We're doing this inspection and that's how it is. But when you read between the lines and you start to really understand definitions and what things mean, it's, it's really easy to find that that's actually just an offer to contract and you can dissect all their words and you can find all the reasons to come to that conclusion. Um, and so I said, so I was learning about this, some stuff and there's some historical things I learned about Canada that, that there's no point of going into, but I'll just briefly explain, um, so Canada is not a country. Uh, it never, it never confederated when Queen Victoria died in 1901. That was the end of the dominion. Um, uh, all, all laws that are considered to have force and effect have to have a thing called Royal assent, which is basically like proof that the queen or the governor general or Lieutenant governors gave authority to that law. And so I know that that's kind of a linchpin with most acts and statutes because they don't have them. 
because they can't prove it uh, because there's no signing. They don't sign any documents. And if <laughs> good luck taking a good luck going into court and trying to defend a contract that there is no proof of a signature to, right? So that's kind of what it fundamentally goes down to. Um, and then there's also another thing that bureaucrats have to do. They have to sign up to, to take an oath to her majesty. And that's what give, is supposed to give them authority. So I knew that, but there's other things I would put in there now, knowing what I know that would be way more amazing. So anyways, I responded to the letter and I said, okay, Mr. Bureaucrat, I would be happy to have you come. You're welcome to come and do this inspection at this date and this time. And I will have everything ready for you. But before we proceed, I need three things from you. So the first thing I need is, is a certified true copy of the act so you say you're acting upon code XYZ from this act, which is the Canadian Food Inspection Agency Act. I need proof that that act actually has authority. And so according to your laws, that gets authority through a thing called royal assent. So I would like you to present to me a certified your copy of the act with proof of royal assent. And the, the, the linchpin there is that they can't prove royal assent because royal assent is this weird ceremony they do where the lieutenant governor just gives a nod and a wink and literally, and doesn't sign anything. So I said, I want you to prove where the royal assent comes from, thus proving where you get your authority. Second, I would like a copy of your oath to Her Majesty that proves you have the ability to act in her authority in good faith. And then thirdly, I want to consult, and this is just for fun, I just said, thirdly, I want a consulting fee for my time. You can pay me $250 an hour, uh, and then you can compensate all my staff $40 an hour to be available um, for their time. And, uh, and then I said, at the end, I put it, I put my own tacit agreement on the end. And I said, you got 21 days to respond. Otherwise this offers null and void. And he wrote back and he was like, uh, first he, he, he gave me everything he did. He, he said, okay, well, uh, I'm sorry, but, um, there is no, I can't give you a certified true copy. I know it exists in Victoria and you can get it, but I don't know if we, if, if there's proof of Royal assent. Um, here's all my paperwork. He, he, he scanned his ID. He scanned all a bunch of documentation that, you know, he was scrambling. He's like, okay, here's all my stuff. Um, but I can't give you a copy of my oath. Um, and then thirdly, he said, unfortunately, we don't have a budget to do, um, to do these inspections. And I said, and so he wrote back to me and I said, Hey, no problem. I, you know, um, I, I know you don't expect me to work for you for free. So thanks for coming out. And I, and I left it at that. And, and to be honest, I was nervous for six months, dude. I was like, I wasn't sure this was going to work because I didn't at the time I, I was following sort of a boilerplate. I didn't totally know what I was doing. Um, I knew that those things were correct. I knew about the certified true copies and the Royal Ascent and all that, but I, I wasn't, I didn't know it like I do now. And he, and, and, and then he, and then like after that response, gone, silenced. And so he never, he never met, see, he never met my obligations, which was, I, I reset the terms and say, you got 21 days to respond. If you don't, the offer is null and void. So I, I laid down a tacit agreement. And so basically in this commercial system, everything is offer and acceptance. It's just, I throw an offer. I do my diligence in good faith. And then it's your obligation now to, to act with an honor and come back. And so I, I was honorable and, uh, that can go deep as well. You can get into this called the laws of equity and, and, and how we conduct ourselves. All most laws are based off the laws of equity, maxims of equity they're called. And, you know, anyways, I did it. And, and when I did that, Aharon, I'm telling you, man, 
it was a matrix moment in that there's a scene in the movie, the matrix where Neo comes back and he's learned all the Kung Fu from Morpheus and he's like super adept. And then he, he encounters and it's in the subway scene where, where agent Smith and the other guys are just like laying down bullets and he just goes, no. And then the bullets <laughs> stop and they drop to the ground. And then that's how I felt, man. Cause I was like, Holy shit. And, and so ever since then, I was, I was just blown away. And, um, and, and then that sent me on a path, uh, of going deeper and, and, and really trying to figure out like why and how and the, what, when, and where of it all. And I think I've found some, some good layers of, of truth and that they've worked. And, you know, a, apart from that, I know a lot of people around the world that have, have done the same thing in, in different, slightly different ways is and it's all the idea of the conditional acceptance and, and you know there's a lot of people in the world worrying about vaccines right now right and and and, and these these heavy-handed governments coming down and 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 saying they can force you to take a vaccine and how that's going to go if it happens is that they're going to send you a letter that says you must come and bring your children and get this vaccine and, oh. and the conditional acceptance is going to be the remedy that that most people could use if they wanted to i'd be i would be happy to take the vaccine and administer it to my children upon these conditions being met. One is you show me where the illegal authority comes from for you to administer such a vaccine. Two, I want to see that you as the individual man or woman administering the vaccine are willing to accept all liability upon harm or injury being done to my children uh three i want to see that you've got an insurance i'm just kind of spitballing these but because you, you can literally it's offer and acceptance you can make these terms wow i want to see that you've got liability insurance of 10 million dollars and that you know you're insured i'm not talking about your corporation you as the man or woman showing up to administer that vaccine i want to see that you've got all of your ducks in a row because i'm not going to just sit here and accept that you say that uh i need a vaccine I want you, the, the burden of proof is on you. He who makes the claim must prove the burden of proof is on he who makes the claim. And that's a, that's a, that goes back to old law. That's kind of just a, I don't know. Is it one of the maxims of equity? I'm not sure, but it, but that it's just a truism within the system. I've heard that echoed by several doctors that I've heard recently in very deep uh, um, uh, discussions. One was uh, Dr. Dolores Carhill. She actually mentioned that specific thing. I don't know if you've heard of her. She talks about vaccine and she mentioned that exact fact that you said, like you, you need to start holding the person that administers that vaccine or whatever it is. The man. Not just the yeah. corporation, not the company, no, you. If you do this thing, you are involved and you're like, yep. you don't bring that. She said, if you don't bring that up and you don't ask, you don't. And so, and so the beauty of this is what we're doing here is we're crossing over into the common law. We're crossing over into what's right and what's wrong. And this is where this whole idea of, of common law courts comes from and common law assemblies is that we're stripping past the layer of that costume you wear, that uniform, that badge. And I'm talking to you as the man. Are you willing to assume liability? I don't care about your corporation or who you work for or anything like that. I'm talking to you as the man. Are you willing to accept responsibility for damage that might come to my children? And in 99 out of a hundred times, they're not going to, cause they're going to go, I don't want to go here. I, because the beautiful thing about this whole thing is that when you really strip it down, it is, it does come down to what's right and what's wrong. And I think, I think most people in the world 
have a moral compass enough to understand what's right and what's wrong. And when you strip away all these layers of fictions and you strip it down to the man or the woman, they know what's right or wrong. And they, they get lost in all the legalese that says, oh, you, have, you can do this or you can't do that or whatever it is, and you have the authority to do this. When you strip it down to just the individual, that's where the skin in the game comes from. And that's, that's, that brings us all back to where we started with this, is that it's the, the, the hypothesis I put to you at the beginning was we're suffering from a lack of responsibility, right? It's convenience over responsibility. And or over liberty, right, which is tied to responsibility, uh, is that once we bring back skin in the game, people will operate in an entirely different way. And this is where I would make the the sort of philosophical case that if we can bring our culture and our humanity back to a place where we strip away all the fictions, we strip away all the externalities of liability and we bring it down to the man and the woman of God. And we say, we are responsible for a corporation so that if you poison the river and murder 10,000 people downstream, that you have indemnified yourself from my liability. No, you're the man. You made the decision to put those chemicals and poisons in the water. And you as the man poison those people and you are liable and justice comes to the man not to the corporation. And that's where I believe I'm at this sort of, this sort of philosophical place where regenerative agriculture, the, the law, uh, education, economy, all these things intersect. I think David Holmgren in his book, Pathways and Principles Beyond Sustainability, kind of articulated a lot of that, but he left out the system, the, 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 the legal or lawful system. And I think that's the missing piece to the, the true regenerative thinking is we need to start looking at how we are governed because God created man in a pyramid. God creates man, man creates laws. Laws are meant to serve man. But what we've done is we've got God, man, laws, and then beneath those laws, we've created persons, residents, citizens, legal, the legal system. And that system is governed by this system. When we rec- recognize our divinity that we are of God and we created the laws, those laws serve us, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And that's where the true, uh, my hope is that in my lifetime, I can start to see uh, the beginnings of, um, can bring all the regenerative aspects together. And we assume full responsibility for everything. We assume responsibility to how we grow our food and how that affects the land. We assume responsibility for how we decide to trade and do commerce in our society. We assume responsibility for how do we take care of those that don't have the ability to take care of themselves? How do we do that? What's involved, right? Uh, Every aspect that we interact in the society, we've passed off. And so we need to come back full circle and realize that we are the creators and we can create any system we imagine. And all it takes is a little bit of, of, of uh, being creative and doing what's natural to us and collaborating with like minds and saying, hey, let's take back some responsibility and decide how we are going to govern ourselves. Because I, I do believe in the idea of law. 
I don't necessarily believe in the idea of government in that government, if you break down the Latin of that, of that word is govern mente. Mente is the mind. Govern is to control. Uh, government really literally means mind control. And so I don't, I don't believe in government. I am, I am a bona fide anarchist, but I do believe in the rule of law. And so I think this is where we come back to the idea of the original Republic. And I think the Republic is the truly, um, is the, is the, is the way that we can govern ourselves. We can have justice. We can take care of those that can't take care of themselves. We can create abundance for all of us to share. We can find ways for all of us to use commerce and, and monetary instruments to, 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 to transact and trade with one another in an efficient way an effective way. And we, we can use that to create a foundation. You know, the, the United States constitution, the original 1776 constitution is a beautiful document. And it is a document of and for the people. It says it right in it. And it is the only one, to my knowledge, that did that. You know, the U.S. lost that in 1871 with the, the 1871 Act that, that corporatized their whole system. And now they're in the same water system that we're all in. But that original inception of and for the people, we create this and it serves us, not the other way. Politicians serve us. And so we don't even, when I really start to think about how this could come out, is we don't need politics. All we need is law. You don't need politicians promising, I'm going to give you this and this and this, and if you vote for me, I'm going to get this. You don't need any of that. You need a system of law that we all agree on, and then you, ha- you hire those people that give that system power. You hire individuals to do certain things, but they're accountable as men and women to their own actions. You're, you're gonna, if you're going to work within this, call it, it's not a government, but it's some kind of structure. And if you're, if, if you get caught for mishandling money or funds or whatever, you're liable as the man and you are liable to justice for the people. And that's, that's powerful. And, and I think we, we could live in a world of accountability, abundance, and true regeneration. Cause we've got a lot to regenerate, you know, we can get there, but it's going to take a while. And I, I think until we start doing it on all facets, because it isn't just about agriculture, it isn't just about the economy, it isn't just about the law, it's about all of those things, and they all intersect, and uh, we, need to, we need to take responsibility and, and move forward. I think it's an excellent um, note to, to, um, to wrap up our, uh, our, uh, our conversation, Nicholas. It's, it's really like, uh, I didn't expect we would go this far into things, and I really, got a, I really hope everyone got a deeper insight into, into what we started to talk about a little bit. We touched a little bit in our first conversation way, way back. This time, I really think we, uh, we, we, uh, we went really deep on some very incredible ideas. I really want to appreciate um, the, you taking us down those, those rabbit holes. Without, uh, you know, I really thought that some of those rabbit holes <laughs> yeah. were confusing or, or too many details, and it was just not that at all, just very, uh, very uh, unifying with many other points that I think are important happening around the world right now. I, what I really wanted to ask you is um, about, uh, about this sovereignty. We talked about liberty. We talked about sovereignty and, and, and the responsibility, the key thing between those two things. I wanted, wonder if you had a message for how do they start, something practical, the step do they start to take that, that sovereignty back and, and, to, and to start to head towards liberty, somebody that maybe might not even know that they're a victim. You know what I mean? Because most people, a lot of people... Yeah, Absolutely. Just something yeah. open, like okay, now is the time to take it. Just one thing to start to take back that sovereignty. And, and yeah, well, I mean, 
for, first, as, as sort of a preamble to that, it's important to understand that sovereignty exists in every aspect of your life that you interact externally. Mm-hmm. So every time you go outside, you're involved in something. So you get into a car, you're, you're, you're engaged in some kind of thing and trust that you're, that you, you know, you're using a vehicle, you're abiding by laws, whatever it is, you, every, everything, every point of interaction that you can become sovereign in. And I mean, I'll bring it right back to where I started 10 years ago with all this is growing food. So how, what you eat and put in your body is a point of sovereignty and it, and to keep it really that simple, it is, it, it can start there, start taking responsibility for what goes in your body. I mean, that that can even start before you just grow your own food. You can start just making better decisions about what you eat and put in your body, right? You can take it further. You can decide where to spend your money and how to save your money and how to use your money. Then you can even decide uh, as far as on, on the economic spectrum of it all, you can decide what kind of money I'm going to use? Am I going to use Bitcoin? Am I going to use uh, shekels? Am I going to use dollars? What is it? And, and maybe there's a mirage of those things that you, that you use to find some kind of level of con- better control and sovereignty in that. And then you can start to look at the system, the legal system. What are these things that are compromising my liberty? And are there ways that I can... Uh, work within that system so that I don't become a criminal and I'm not considered what's what they call a belligerent where they're going to come and kick down the doors and arrest me. Because at the end of the day, we have to realize that the government is just a big gang, right? It's just, it's just the, the government is the monopoly on the use of force. That's, that's what government is. Literally it's, it's one particular group that has a monopoly to use violence when nobody else does right so they have that monopoly exclusively the cops can kick the shit out of you and murder you do the same to them right so that's all government is and so it's important to keep that in perspective because if you're going to start playing with this stuff you have to be cautious and i'm not um you know some when people hear the word sovereign they think okay he's talking about free man on the land and all that stuff and and I am in some ways, but I'm not exclusively talking about that. This freedom and sovereignty exist in every point of interaction. And so it's up to you to decide how much of that you want, how far you want to go, and uh, and what meets your own holistic context. Because at the end of the day, uh, this comes down to you. You're, you're um, a, a God-given divine creation experiencing life as a man or a woman on this earth. And you are the creator of your own existence. And you you ultimately make the decision on what's good enough for you. Because I found the sovereignty also exists in the spirit realm in that I know some people who are totally sovereign, but only in the metaphysical and that's good enough for them. So they accept the fact that they have to abide by all these bullshit regulations and codes and pay all these exorbitant amount of taxes or whatever, but they've transcended that taking anything from them. And they don't care because I think at the end of the day in, in sort of a, I like to think of, of the, the system, the sort of elite, the system that control everything, be that corporations and, and what we know as government, they're vampires, they're bloodsuckers, they're leeches, they're rent seekers, they're, they're, they're individuals and groups that don't actually provide value in the world. They just extract value that we create because we're the creators. They can't create themselves. They just take from creators and so once you can remove yourself from getting bummed out about the fact that you're 
paying taxes or whatever, and you can transcend it, you've already won a major sovereign fight because I would, I would make the sort of spiritual and philosophical case that the reason we pay taxes is not because the government needs the money because they print all the money. What the hell do they need taxes for? It's to actually keep us compartmentalized in a mental prison to suck us dry of our divine spirit. Uh, it's, it's a way of sort of demoralizing our spirit so that we don't recognize the power of our divinity. And that's the entire point of taxes. And I've, I've even, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to and interviewed uh, people who worked for tax departments, such as the IRS and the CRA that have actually told me the same thing. There's actually no reason to pay taxes. Uh, the taxes all go to these international monetary fund and all that. Anyways, they don't even go to your own country. Uh, they, they can't even show you where your tax dollars go. It's not like when you pay your income tax statement, they give you uh, a, a, a statement that says, hey, this is where all your dollars went and this is how we spent them. <laughs> you never get that kind of thing. Um, so it, it's all just meant to drain your livelihood and keep you convinced that there's a cage around you. And that cage has multiple layers, bringing it back to the idea of the onion in the true divinity in the center and then layers of cages on top of that. And so the more we can transcend those cages, the more we can come back to our true divinity where there is so much power. And so sovereignty comes to that. It isn't just a matter of being what, what people know as a free man on the land and saying, I'm not going to pay taxes. I don't need a driver's license. I don't need any of this. I'm just going to exist as a man. And, and people can do that. And they certainly do. The more you look into that stuff, though, you'll always find that the ones that get the most amount of news headlines are the ones that failed and screwed it up. You don't really hear about the ones that have been successful about it. And of course, there's a reason for that, right? As you can, you, you know, you're laughing because it, it's, it's obviously true. Um, but uh, that's that's really what it is, is start incrementally peeling back those layers and you decide which one has more value to you. And if that if all that means is um, you practicing your religious faith every uh, Sabbath, whatever that Sabbath is for you, and growing your own food, then you are a sovereign man on the land. Uh, it's up to you to decide because you are the creator. We are not in a world that exists that's happening to us. We've created this world and we decide where it goes. And we are infinitely powerful. And the more we start to recognize that power and find others who share it, we will be like ripples on a pond where you'll cast a thousand stones into a pond and those ripples create massive tidal waves. And I think, um, I think that's what we can do. And I, I'm very optimistic that this era that we're in right now is waking up a lot of people to that power because they're going, this is insane. I didn't sign up for this. And then they're starting to wake up to certain things and ask certain questions. And then they're coming to our pod and being reminded of their true power. And I hope people take that and do something with it. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Really, 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 really powerful, Curtis. I really want to uh, acknowledge uh, where you've taken this uh, conversation. Um, and uh, also, I, I just want to um, acknowledge, I really believe um, something very strongly. It's something I've started to believe ever since I started going down the rabbit hole being an entrepreneur. And also, obviously, on the side, I'm very interested in ecology and, and the deep connection with ecology is something for the last more than 10 years I'm interested in. But once the entrepreneurial the level started to come in, I, I the really think that linked everything together for me spiritually was that we are all totally 100% unique and we have a responsibility to express that uniqueness in ourselves. You know, we, Because if we don't, then not only we're in a lack, everyone is in a lack. And, and I think that's like just what you said there, you know, 
Some people want the third layer of the onion off. Some people want the fifth and the second. Some people want all the layers off. And it's really, you know, the sovereignty, like you said, the sovereignty will depend on that unique person and their context. And I really want to acknowledge you for your own uh, letting that uniqueness come out. I'm really trying to express that to the fullest. You know what I mean? And that doesn't, it goes beyond just being a market gardener or a farmer or a businessman or a family man. And it's really like, it, it's nuanced. And I really want to acknowledge you for like letting that, that go and just being in that, in that nuanced space. It's not a, it, I think it's a, it's not um, taken for granted. And, and I think it's a, it's a courageous space to be in. So I really want to acknowledge you for, for doing that and being more than the urban farmer, Curtis. <laughs> Hey, my pleasure, Aaron. It's a, it's a, it's a delight to talk to you, and uh, I really, really enjoy these conversations. So, um, yeah, again, thanks for having me here, and uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. It's, it's my pleasure. I think these, these kind of the conversations are very powerful, and if there's anything uh, watching and and going through Jordan Peterson's content about me, it's the power of deep conversations. We're not as stupid as we've been told or we've been led to believe. You know, we. We are very powerful and that sharing that knowledge and, and, and having those kind of deep conversations, I think can have a very powerful effect. It's not just philosophy or having a chat. You know what I mean? So I, I think it's a... Uh, absolutely. We really appreciate being on the show, Curtis. And um, uh, anyone, we're going to put all the show notes for the various different projects um, Curtis is, uh, is involved in. If you want to get out and do something fast and to establish uh, your own plot of land right now, I've left the city with my family. We're right now on looking at, you know, at the, at the soil outside and saying, okay, what are we going to do with it? If you want a really fast track to be able to establish quickly a, a, a system that's going to give you food very fast and not destroy the, you know, the, the, the situation outside, Curtis is the man to talk with. The urban farm, you've got lots of um, uh, nodes that you can connect with up there from, from the field. Um, the urban farmer, the book, uh, Urban Farm, which is incredibly uh, in-depth and very entrepreneurial. So you've got a lot of different areas you can think. We'll put all the links in the show notes. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the Liberty on the Land is, is semi-retired for the time being. We, uh, we, we, let's, let's see where, where you take that, uh, Curtis. But there's plenty of other areas you can interact with, um, with, uh, with Curtis Stone and keep up with what he's doing. We'll put all those things in the show notes. And um, anyone that wants to keep up with us, um, uh, we're on YouTube now, finally. I'm, I'm kind of slow in, in doing all these things. My focus is these conversations and getting them, um, taking them to the, to the um, as far as we can. So, um, yeah, we're going to do some channels and also YouTube now. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to our next conversation with Curtis. I'm sure there'll be another one in the mix somewhere because it was really, really amazing conversation. And um, thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks a lot, Curtis Stone. My pleasure. Thank <laughs> you.